This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother, Dagan Bangalore Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today, my friend. How are you? Nice. I forgot the name of those and I had to do some research again because I was I was fascinated with those things. Bangalore! Bangalore! <laughs> I thought I was going to be digging Fubar. Fubar, yeah. Moriarty. Yeah, fucked up beyond all recognition. That's not very nice. <laughs> That's... Wouldn't call you that. It's not good. You know what's funny? We almost, we were talking about doing the first, spoiler alert for you guys, talking about doing the first Lethal Weapon movie today. Mm-hmm. Also... A FUBAR movie, right? Yeah. That's where, right? They they quote FUBAR, maybe not in the first one, but maybe into the second one. Definitely in the second one, I want to say. Right. That term was something that I only became familiar with through movies in that time yeah. period. Because that's, uh, th- what's the other one? Snafu, situation normal, all fucked up. You know, oh, that's a, right. That's another, that's another word. That that word is kind of more joined normal lexicon. lexicon in Yeah, that has. In America right or that. whatever. But I love that term, too. All the different military terms. Very interesting. It's a good one. Did I ever tell you this? I don't know if I've ever told, told this story. You know, I have the the association snake on, a tattooed on my arm, as people know, like the, the Franklin um, join or die snake. I got sure, that tattooed sure. on my arm. Of course. I don't know. 2005 or something like that. The only okay. reason, by the way, join or die is not underneath it on my arm is because my, my girl arms won't allow it. So that's why it's written here underneath instead <laughs> what as far as like real estate yeah exactly like the oh. guy just couldn't make it fit so oh, I, can, I hear this dude that. who's not in the military um a friend of my ex's cousin or something like that apparently like i met him we had like an, an you know whatever the day we were together or whatever and then apparently he had like this real beef against me because he thought i was being a poser by having that tattooed on me because it's a military symbol and then oh. held this against me for like years, not knowing that, not knowing that it's nothing to do with that at all. And uh, so then I saw him at a wedding a few years ago and he uh, he apologized to me because of that. And I just thought that was really? so funny because I just thought that was so funny because we're talking about all this military stuff. But I actually had no fewer than three friends, all of them Marines that I went to school with all asked me if they could get that tattooed on them. Not that I own this, but they were literally like, that's so cool. We want to get that tattooed on us, including, oh, wow. including a friend of mine, Dave, who's a buddy of mine, who's a Marine helicopter gunner who has a tattooed on his chest. So Dude, that's just, that's that was awesome. just funny, all the different symbolism. And I always think about that guy. Not always, but once in a while when I look at my arm. <laughs> little does Do you know, know that silent grudge was happening while it was in the throes of happening? No, I don't know what he thought, what he, I mean, he's obviously dumb. This this symbol predates the United States. That has nothing to do with the United States. <laughs> it was something that I was obviously like retroactively like retconned into American sure. the American Revolution, but it's from the French and Indian War. I have uh, no time for ancient. dumb people. And I always think about that person. Managing, You'll never forget that. A managing editor at IGN, this guy named Chuck, once told me 
you really suffer no fools. And he meant it as an insult, but I took it as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that could go either way. Suffering no fools, right? It definitely means you're a, a little bit of a, a hard character. But, you know, we... I don't even know why that, that came up. just speaks to your, your intelligence. Something clearly you know? is... That just came up. I mean, I had to get it off my chest, I guess. I don't know what that was all about. <laughs> anyway... Dig, as you know, we already discussed today is Saving Private Ryan. Fan voted topic over on Patreon.com slash Last Damn Media. Famous 1998 Spielberg film. I think one of the best films of all time, I think widely considered. And certainly one of the most seminal movies of all time. I was watching with Micah, who had never seen it all the way through. And mm. I was kind of tuning in and out, to be honest, because I'm like, I've seen this movie 8,000 times. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> I could just tell you everything that happens. In the entire movie. And it's not just hand. from the historical stuff, because that's really kind of in the background. It's it's just like we I know I know all the beats, but I still get sucked into certain parts of it. And my disenchantment with it, let's say not disenchantment. That's not even what the right word, but my my dispassion for it, let's say, is not about the quality of the movie. But because people have to remember that this movie was just ubiquitous after it came out, it was on fucking TV constantly. Everyone had it on VHS. Everyone had it on DVD and so on and so forth. Huge. But before we get into all of that, I'm curious. So do you have anything you want to kick off with today to kind of stretch your legs? <laughs> Helene helped us out this time because she just texted me right before we went on. They're at the pool, you know, the local town pool. And Swimming in each other's she... piss. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing that kind of plays into it. Okay. This, the conversation this time, because she said Graydon found like a piece of turf or something in the pool. And I guess the lifeguards got wind of it and shut down the pool for an hour. So she very aggravatedly texted me, we're getting a pool. I'm starting the research now. That when Helene wow. starts the research, when that when that boulder starts to roll down the hill, it's going to be hard to stop the momentum. Good for you. So we may... Be getting a pool. Nice. I just got and, out of this the pool. plays into what I said last week too, with her planning everything, right? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, economically, I mean, I, I, it's not. I'm not ready for that at all. But I don't know. I don't know how she's going to pull this off. She actually texted me if she thinks Dad would give us a loan. <laughs> she was joking, of course. But uh, yeah, so that's uh, before that. I was thinking about telling you about my Canada trip. But to sum that up, to sum my Canada trip up. Toronto is a Toronto. Yeah. Really surprised me. Yeah. I don't know what I was expecting. I guess I never gave it that much thought. It's a city I always knew was on the large side. Growing up as a skateboarder, it's a city I always wanted to see from a skateboarding perspective. And then I think of, of course, being the film nerd, right? You think of like Toronto playing into films. A lot of people shooting up there because it's cheaper, but it looks like New York supposedly. But I don't know any of this firsthand until I get up there. Definitely much bigger city than I was expecting. I mean, it's it's huge. I mean, I don't know if it's geographically larger than Philadelphia proper, but the downtown area with the skyscrapers and such is much bigger than Center City, Philadelphia. It dwarfs it. So I would say somewhere between Philly vibes and New York vibes, it feels like a big city. Not quite on the scale of New York, but definitely huge. And historical like we ate at restaurants from like the 1800s one, one breakfast place was founded in 1908 i don't know what i was ex- i don't know why i was expecting something newer and i i don't know why i was expecting anything less than city vibes in terms of the people like some people were really nice some people were really rude it was just like 
it was just like New York. I was, ex- I don't know if, why I was expecting greater hospitality. Like they were very nice at the hotel. We stayed downtown. We were right near TIFF, which was fun. And seeing the different parts of town, Queen Street, which has definitely South Street vibes or Greenwich Village vibes and stuff. But uh, it was a nice trip. But really, Toronto blew my mind because I had no idea it was to that magnitude. And then we saw a Blue Jays game, not realizing that Rogers Center is right downtown. So we were laughing because when the ball games got out for the three or four days that we were there, I think Detroit was in town. Uh, So they had a four game series. So there was baseball every day we were there at home. And it's just it when the game gets out, tens of thousands of people are unleashed onto downtown. So you think of our perspective with Shea Stadium, now City Field, or Yankee Stadium, or Citizens Bank in Philadelphia. Those ballparks are removed from the epicenters of the city. And we were just laughing about what if Philly fans, 50,000 Phillies fans, were just unleashed on a center city field, Philadelphia, every day, and how bad that would go, and how well-behaved the people, you know, generally people from the suburbs are coming in for the games and stuff like that. But I thought that was really interesting. Mm. And think of like the same thing with Manhattan. What if the ballpark was a couple of blocks from Times Square and the city had that that sort of level, that number of people unleashed onto the downtown area when a game got out every day, you know, however, they're kind of like San Francisco, 70 games a week or something, 80 games a year or whatever. Right. Yeah, That's the way it is in San Francisco, like San Fran. Right. So there are cities like that, but we're not used to it. So we were laughing at how, you know, and people, you see people making a day out of it. They go to the game, they go to a restaurant, they go shopping. Everybody's in their Blue Jays gear, right? So that was interesting. It was really fun. It was eye-opening. It's not far. I think we got home in like eight. We, it took us a while to get there because of the traffic. Yeah, Toronto's but, below the the divide, like the, the, the general border divide between the United States and Canada that goes out towards like the, the um, prairie provinces to the west. So Toronto's right. closer than people think. It's close to the Northeast. Yeah, it took us eight hours to get home, I think. And Lake Ontario, you know, seeing Lake Ontario, I've never really seen the Great Lakes in any great degree. So seeing a lake that looks like an ocean was kind of creepy. (laughs) It's like, holy shit, look at the size of this thing. So it was uh, it was an eye opening trip. It was fun. And uh, I got a lot of responses on Twitter from people in Toronto giving me tips and pointers for restaurants and sites and fun things to do. So. Very much appreciated. Yeah, I'd like to nice. go back up. I'd like to go in September for the film festival. I really would. We you missed should. it by a month or so. You should. Toronto's a cool town. I, I was there last in um, 2014, maybe. And it, it okay, is, not too long it, ago. It is a very metropolitan place. It reminds yes. me a lot of um, like a New York. It's definitely Vancouver is the same way where it's just a very big city. And I, I don't think. Canada's small. I mean, it's a huge territory, but there's not many people there. What is I'm going to guess and then I'll look it up. Okay. Okay. I want to say there's like 45 million people in Canada. Let's see. Canada population. Sounds like a good guess. 38 million. Not even close. Oh, you are high. California has more people than than Canada. (laughs) True story. There's something wrong with that. So, so, uh, (laughs) you don't expect a place like that. It's a kind of a similar with Australia, which I think has a similar population, maybe a little bit bigger, where it's just a lot of territory. Yeah. And then so it's like, of course, people live in 
Sydney and Melbourne and Perth and all those places. And there's suburbs, and of course, but there's nothing in the middle of the country. It's right, not quite not that bad in, in Canada, but it's kind of bad. And I've been to some of those random places. Like, I've been to Calgary and shit like that. It's, oh, it's, wow. It's, I didn't. I don't know if I realized you were all, all over Canada. Yeah. So Dad and I went to, I first went to Alberta with Dad in 1995 because he was looking for land there. <laughs> oh, my God. I forgot about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's we, a, we were that's like in Utah, Ma- all over Montana, and then went into that. Alberta. I don't sure. know what the Saskatchewan. I don't know what the situation was there. I just wanted to, we wanted to go and kind of we were here, you know. But I was all over Montana, like everywhere in Montana. Like every whenever someone says a place like Kalispell or something, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I was there. I actually went to that place. Random, <laughs> randomly, place. I've been there, you know. Um, <laughs> so that's that's funny. But yeah, man, it's cool that you went. But now, why did you go again? This has something to do with. Like you picked yeah, Toronto one of Lily's good friend lives up there. Right. Okay. Her her best friend essentially lives up there now. So we went to visit her. Helene and I had never met her parents. So we went to basically for Lil's to hang out. Now they live in the suburbs. So they weren't even downtown. So we went and then Helene's been wanting to go to Niagara Falls for years. And none of us have ever been. I don't know how that's a thing. But yeah, yeah. Well, so that, did you enjoy that? So we kind of tied that in the Canadian side of the falls. And that was cool. That was cool to finally get to see the falls and see what that place is about. And, you know, he did a couple of fun restaurants. The kids had a good time, stayed at a nice hotel, whatever, just kind of. Cool. So it was half Toronto, half the falls. So Helene could, thought she could kind of cleverly tie that in, which kind of worked, you know, and it broke up the trip on the way home because we hit Toronto first and then headed back down south. So I got to see some random places too. Rochester, I never been. Uh, Buffalo, I had never seen. Not much to see. You spent the, you spent the <laughs> year in Buffalo one day, as the old as the old joke goes. I love that. No one uses those jokes anymore. That's like a very fifty year old joke. Yeah, to make that fun really of a place. You know, I don't think people even realize that like, that is a joke when you say like, because uh, like, I'll say it once in a while. Someone's like, oh, you know, I went to you know whatever Omaha, and I was like, oh yeah, I spent a month in Omaha one day. Yeah. And they like it just they're like, oh, yeah, you went to Omaha. Like, that's kind of like their response. And I'm like, no, never mind. Don't you get my Henny Youngman joke? No, what the fuck? Come on. This is 1935. (laughs) Let's get going. Now, I haven't talked to you in. Well, we skipped a week. So what's been happening? Yeah, We did the Ninja Gaiden episode. People don't know that we did. We did those episodes back to back and back to back days. Now, before I quick before I even get to my own thing, I'm curious. Yeah, was yeah. this a friend that Lilia had in real life that moved to Toronto, or is, there, is it an online friend? No, that, this is a friend she made online. They, I think, their tie was a band that they both liked, so they oh, cool. were both really like big fans of this band. And <laughs> much to your chagrin, it was not 311. Yeah. <laughs> Something either neither of us have heard of. But uh, I think that was kind of the common thread, cool. and then they just hit it off. But it was so funny when they saw each other because, dude, it was such a genuine. I wish I could share the video like them sort of embracing outside the hotel in Toronto. They came, spent the day in Toronto, and then they went back to the suburbs and hung out and stuff. Dude, it was so it was so funny because you never know how something like that's gonna go, right? Well, like, yeah, that's what it, I was saying. Like I've done that, but I did that kind of stuff when no one was doing that kind of stuff. Like I. I had a good friend online, Graham, who I loved. I loved him. He was a couple I years older Graham. than me. Yeah. And we met like he came and hung out for a week in Massachusetts when mom lived up there in 2000 or 1999. Now, that's like a different era to do that kind of shit. Like social Hell media yeah. didn't exist. We didn't have like I didn't even have a cell phone at that time. We were right. friends. We used to talk on like IRC and AIM. We met through PlayStation Magazine because PlayStation Magazine used to have like 
um, classifieds that you would put like this they, at, the, at the bottom of like the last few pages, Shit. they would have like these bars and it would be like people's sure. names, their, their email addresses, the games they're into. And like they're looking for friends to like talk about games. And that's and so, so that's how we met in 1997, Dude, I want to say. And like so I some people would think that what that kind of thing is weird. That that's never been weird to me because I really do think you can make those kinds of very close personal connections. Absolutely. He was like my best friend, you know, for, for a few years, like I would say, like ultimately when you look back at it. So you guys hit it off. Yeah. 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 And actually, oh, my God, I'm not even going to tell this story. Well, because it sounds bad that I'm not going to tell it. <laughs> Mom was dating this dude at the time. John. Okay. I don't know if you remember that guy. I do. Indeed. He was a fucking scumbag. Yeah. He bag. was a jerk. And uh, he like went off on Graham when he came like being being like, I don't trust you. And this is weird and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, I, Whoa. I remember this. Yeah, I was in like, like, 10th or 11th grade. I started crying. Where and did then, that come from? I don't know. But we threw him in the dumpster. You know, John was out not too long after that. So, yeah, he didn't make it much longer. after no, that, Right. No. But I remember that about him as well. So, yeah, I don't think that kind of thing is weird. I've lived much of my life online. People are different online today. But my online was like the early to mid 90s online that was dial up and quaint. Yes. Chat rooms and IRC, which is Internet Hell Relay yeah. Chat, ICQ. I don't even know if that's AIM. a thing anymore. AIM's not a thing anymore. But ain't yeah, AIM for sure. Message boards, game facts, forums. Usenet before that. I wasn't that I'm not that old. So oh my gosh. So it's uh, I can I think that's really cool. That's why I asked, because I think that that's why should you be geographically limited to who you can be friends with? Absolutely. Well said. Right. Yeah. You shouldn't just be friends, neighbors who you're geographically approximated to. You know, luck should have it that this is my neighbor. This is my friend. This is my coworker. So, yeah, who knows what kind of relationships you could have with people outside your immediate purview. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm happy for them. And I'm happy that they hit it off personally and that that, you know, it was able to transcend the the space. And but I guess they know each other. You know, they're they're literally on Skype and Zoom calls every day. It's like, yeah, they know each other. They know about each other at that point. They know each, they know each other much better than she knows. Probably most of the people around her. And that's why. Yeah, that's why it's good. That's why I think this is good. It's such a powerful time to be alive. Absolutely. Because you're, you're not limited. Could you imagine like you're limited and, you know, back in the day, you're limited to the books you can read because of what's available around you. You're limited to the information that people around you have in their heads. You're limited to you're limited by proximity to those you can connect with. And, and right. even mail like you can't necessarily guarantee something to get somewhere. It's like absolutely we just take a lot of things for granted. That's what I remember trying to tell mom when I moved to San Francisco and she was upset. I'm like, it's so and that this was but that was before smartphones. That was before. Yeah. And I was like, mom, we can talk on the phone. We can email. We can do all these kinds of things now. Did. I don't know. It's like you're, you're not. Just, I don't feel like I'm distant from you. Like, no, it's it's kind of fucked up to say because I don't mean it in a bad way. But like, I don't need to see you necessarily. Like, I, I talk to you more than almost anyone. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So the it's nice doesn't to see matter you, but now. it's like it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. Exactly. Cool, man. Well, I'm glad you had fun. Thank uh, you, Yeah, nothing friend. going on here. Micah's parents were here just for a night. So we were hanging out with them. Oh, that's last cool. Night. They're going they're en route to a um, Micah's mom's side of the family is from virginia so they're they come here for a family reunion I always every forget year. that okay so uh so they're going to that and then um yeah we're going to dinner tonight and that's basically it i just got out of the pool before nice. we started recording speaking of pools and nice hot <sighs> down there it's been hot oh my god it's hot as fuck it's dude it's hot. so hot it's been so hot it's uh nine in the 90s and again it's i I, well, I I think it was on sacred symbols i was making fun of man the europeans are broiling over there without their air conditioning now i'm just mm-hmm. I'm, f- I'm feeling for you guys nice cool 68 degrees in my house right now <laughs> it's not nice to rub two it in. zone ac 
gotta rock that dual zone, man. Oh, you got us. Oh, you got it. I'm jealous, though. I dropped the um, the only reason I have any of this is because the house is new. Like, I, I didn't ask for any of this. That's yeah. what they do now. Sure. Right. It's just like, okay, cool. So that's how they built. Uh, yeah. So I, I drop, you know, I keep it. I keep it at 72 downstairs. Keep it at 68 upstairs because like the, the heat rises. So it goes it up does. the stairs and it kind of balances out. It does indeed. my friend. And uh, Allie's the one that taught me because I'm so stupid. I'm truly stupid with a lot of things. <laughs> I'm like, why is my electricity bill so high? with the AC and she's like you can't shut the AC off when you don't want it to be on anymore and then turn it back on like you have to just keep the AC on and right let it just be a temperature and then I right. was like oh and then my my electricity bill went down like two-thirds you so saw like, the different huge difference because you have to start it up and then it's got to get everything cold again and then it's like okay and then you let the air out or you don't let the air out, you shut it off because you're like oh it's cool enough that yeah. was just kind of my, I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking no, about. No, I could see not knowing that, though. I don't even think of that. I, I, I always just up the number in the morning, right? 74. If it gets over 74, it's too hot. It kicks in, right? Yeah, that's the strategy. 74 is pretty, strategy. That's pretty high, but I, I would, yeah, that's, that's, that's very comfortable. It's that's high. very comfortable. Yeah. 72, you know, 70. Some people like 70, 68. 68 for sleeping. Good. 68 for sleeping. Oh, yeah. That's, there's no other number. I want to be cold when I sleep. Absolutely. So I can get the covers over me. The pups are in bed with me. Do you Mike remember Uncle Mike? Too. I'm sure it's still the same. 55 to sleep. Is that is is that? Dude, I, you would I don't walk remember. in their bedroom and their whole house was cool. I mean, their house was yeah, probably yeah, 60, cool. right? But yeah. you walked into the bedroom. It was like walking into the Arctic. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and that's where we slept. We slept on the floor in there. They slept in the bed. We slept on the floor. Dana and I, when we slept over. Yeah, 55 degrees. And I'm sure it hasn't changed. Which is that's intense. That's cold. Dad would have had he, a heart attack if we tried that. Oh my God! No, that would have never in, in a million years happened. Well, Uncle Mike also has a pool cooler. Oh really? I, and I was like, which is cool, but I would. Pardon the pun, but <laughs> I was. But I have, I got a heater for my sure. pool, which you don't even really need because it's so yeah, fucking it's hot here so that the pool is just getting blasted with <laughs> I mean, the pool is literally ninety degrees with without the heater, <laughs> which is nice. I like it's it. Like, a like it's cool. It's like you're just yeah, but. He got one to keep the pool cool. That's interesting. The, the pool. Yeah. Yeah. So he likes the cold. Never. Yeah. yeah, he definitely does. Shout out to Uncle Mike. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We've gone on long enough. People are like, can you shut the Let's fuck up? Let's do it. Enough, Uncle Mike. Let's talk about Saving Private Ryan. Now, as I said, Saving Private Ryan was a fan voted topic. It barely beat Final Fantasy X. Thank God. Because <laughs> I don't want to play Final that Fantasy X for the show. But, uh, <laughs> that was a close but, I, but actually, I, it's funny. It, it kind of convinced me to start playing Final Fantasy X on Vita just for just on the side and you know, here and there. So maybe maybe we'll get to that one day. But Saving Private Ryan won. And of course, if you go over there, you can submit your topics for the show. And we uh, we have an, a two part election every month. It's quite fun. Thousands of people participate. You submit your ideas and, and all the rest. So, yes, yeah, Saving Private Ryan climbed to the top. Woo. And we're here now. It's a 1998 film came out the summer of 1998, July 24th, made for 70 million dollars, grossed about 500 million dollars. Starring Tom Hanks and, of course, directed by Steven Spielberg. I, I don't, I'm curious. So I was wondering, like, how do we talk about Saving Private Ryan? First That's of all, I was surprised movie. we never did this movie. We kind of did because 
episode eight, I think, of Knockback is our favorite war movies. And so certainly this movie, I think, came ah, up in that conversation. Yes. I also think we did Band of Brothers. We did. But I, so not to be fooled again, like I was with the pool episode in which we did two <laughs> pool episodes. I, I Googled and I didn't see anything. So maybe we did do Saving Private Ryan, but I don't think we did. I don't think and so. <laughs> so it was uh, and I was surprised by that because I was like, damn, didn't we do this movie? But I, I wanted to kind of cover it in a different way, I guess, because I don't want to talk about it necessarily beat to beat the, the history. So much has been said about this movie. We, instead, we have a bunch of listener inquiries that just ask us different specific questions about the movie. And I think awesome. that'll be the best way to go through. Saving Private Ryan. However, it. just at the top, I mean, what do you think of this film? I, I'm, I'm curious what, what your high level thoughts are on Saving Private Ryan. I do consider it, although I don't think about it very often. And again, I think it's a little played out, which kind of hurts it. Mm. But it's. I feel like if you can just kind of remove that and be more objective about it, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. It's inc- incredibly impressive production. I can't believe they made it for as little money as, as they did, even in that time. It's so convincing. And I was noting when we were watching, it, I'm like, man, I w- it would have been so cool to be an extra in this movie in some way. There, there's so many people. There's so much humanity in the movie. And it's a lot of it. Some of it's not. Some of it's matte paintings and CG and all that. But a lot of it's practical. Yeah. And especially the intro is some of the most impressive practical effects I have ever seen. And and I, I just think what, what I think about this movie Dig is that I think it's, it was clearly very hard to make. Like, I, I think it, it, it's the fruit of the labor. And so I'm curious what you think of saving private Ryan over these last 20, what is it? 24 years or so. Yeah. I was enamored of this movie when it came out. I remember very specifically seeing it with Helene, just Helene and I in the theater in the summer of 98. And it really took me back to that period. At first, I have to say, I was kind of upset with you guys for voting for it because my initial gut reaction was like, oh, shit, this is a hard movie to watch. And of course, I'm channeling largely the opening 20, 25 minute storming the beach in Normandy. But there are, you know, it's a it's a very visceral, very realistic in many ways interpretation of war and specifically that very bloody war and that very bloody part of the of world war ii so at first it was like gut check time and i remember telling helene i was like oh man i gotta sit down and watch private ryan like i felt like i had to steal myself but i remember seeing it for the first time and being you know riveted glued to my seat i remember being the you know again the first half hour of the film being very upsetting very hard to get through i'm not good with gore and blood as you guys know so that very realistic portrayal of a battle with young kids basically going to the slaughter was really kind of challenging for me and that's what i was cha- you know kind of channeling going in and watching it two nights ago but i have to say i really enjoyed it and it was a stark reminder of how powerful a movie it is. And like you said, Kyle, I think it's the perfect word. Very impressive filmmaking. And I know, I think largely for Tom Hanks and all the acting and Steven Spielberg and everybody involved, people training the Irish army, the actual Irish army that played extras, especially in Normandy and stuff. I think it was really a labor of love. I think it was a difficult movie to make. And I think it opened up a lot of people's eyes to what had happened decades earlier And how heavy it was. And, you know, and, you know, I come out, I'm born in the 70s into the 80s. I'm no stranger to war movies, right? Especially Vietnam films, Platoon, Hamburger Hill, Casualties of War, Full Metal Jacket, 
Jacob's Ladder, whatever. Yeah, like, I was going to say, I was going to say it. I was going to wait to see if, you, if you're right? going to bring it up. All those movies. <laughs> so we're no stranger to visceral, griddle, gritty presentations for war movies. But this one kind of just took it to the next level in far as scope. And I remember this period because Helene and I, 97 and 98, again, kind of transported back to this period. Helene and I were taking in a lot of movies. We were getting ready to graduate from our respective art schools in 98. High stress, portfolio reviews, getting the demo reels together. Helene's spending all night in the studio painting and illustrating. And movies was our release during those two years. And I remember this one sort of being an exhale. Like we had probably just graduated a month earlier. So we were still doing that thing of going to the movies and kind of blowing off steam. And this was one of those ones that was just as entertaining as it was challenging, if that makes sense. And I remember not really expecting that from Spielberg. You know, I'm channeling Jurassic Park and Indiana Jones and all the things that we love Spielberg for all the popcorn and I think this movie was kind of a shock, even coming on the heels of Amistad and Schindler's List and all that kind of stuff. I remember being it really struck by the tone of it. And I think you already said it too, Kyle, just kind of centering this war story upon characters, you know, and it's really about these characters. It's about these guys in this situation and feeling like you know them. And it was really kind of a pleasure, despite the gore, despite how upsetting it could be. It was really kind of a, a pleasure to go back and visit and see how well it holds up. At some point, someone, Spielberg and his people, decided that they were going to do the incredibly difficult work of making a rendition of something that happened not before moving pictures, but before the ubiquity of the moving picture. Mm. There was press with them, but there wasn't press with them on the first wave or the second wave. There's not that much footage of what really happened there. And during the moment to moment battles, because it was a different time. I guarantee you, although they're buried deep in the Pentagon or something, everyone's helmet cam shit and all of that stuff for everything possible, all the satellite imagery that the equipment on the trucks, everything's filming. Everything's got infrared like they know. We know everything from every angle. They we don't see a lot of it, but they know what it looks like. And I'm impressed that it seems like they had to kind of cobble this together based on what everyone said it was like from all angles, because, of course, the Nazis had an experience too. the Nazis experience began with this invasion, of course, with Neptune and whatever, a little earlier, just because the air, which we see more in Band of Brothers, because the airborne is actually in the night before. And so the shit's already gone off for them. Like they know something's up and which is what makes it so tense. And so I really think that what's so important about Saving Private Ryan to the point you were making was it had to remind everyone like this is actually what happened here. Do you know that? And I think that a lot of people didn't. I didn't. I was in ninth going into ninth grade. I mean, I was I loved history. I was already in love with it at that point. But. And I don't know if you remember, the movie was part of the zeitgeist where everyone was talking about it. Did you see the first 30 minutes of Saving Private Ryan? Holy shit. The first 30 minutes of Saving Private Ryan. Have you seen the first 30 minutes of Saving Private Ryan? Like that whole fall in that summer into the fall. So all everyone talked about it really. And while the rest of the movie is expertly done, wonderful, excellent characters, the casting in this movie is just absurdly good from 
Tom Hanks and Tom Sizemore and Giovanni Rabisi and Vin Diesel. And it's just fucking, you know, Paul Giamatti's in this and every, everyone's in yes. this, right? Great. You know, Ted Danson's in it. And they're everyone's all in this. awesome. Yeah. And everyone is, everyone's great. So so they nail that. But it, it is that first 30 minutes that I think was really important for people to see and to 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 remind people because I think a lot of people are focused on the gore of at this point in, in history in the nineties still Vietnam still kind of resonating it's not been that long twenty four years about as distant as we are now from Saving Private Ryan we were from then to the end of uh, the Vietnam War and I think we looked at that war as chewing up a generation of Americans it did almost sixty thousand people sure but I think we forgot about this whole other thing because while Vietnam was on television every night with Walter Cronkite and and the guys on the ground doing this on the air reporting and a lot of skepticism and people in the streets rioting and this draft and World War Two is just an existential crisis. And I really just think people had lost sight of it by then. And I also think because of that 50 year anniversary, having kind of hovered in the mid 90s from when the events happened, you know, in the in the mid 40s, in the early and mid 40s, that I think we realized people are dying that were there. The stories are really important to get out. Band of Brothers does this much more. But this is, I think, part of that, too, a reminder of this. And I think it got a whole not only even a whole generation, but multiple generations of people invested in World War Two as a topic and made them militarily conscious, politically conscious. I think this movie is really, really important in that way. Yeah. And. um, Yeah. So I wanted to just lay all of that out because I think the time and place in which it came out is really relevant. There's not many people. I mean, they're alive, but they're they're old now, man. Yeah. Like anyone that was around like it's it, a lot of them are not there anymore. A lot of them can't communicate anywhere. I mean, these are these are people that are getting up there in age 100 years old, close yeah. to that, you know. Yep. So I think it's an important imprint in American society to be like, yeah, dude, like we. These guys are fucking crazy compared to you soft assholes. And I feel that way about myself. These dudes are hard as nails, man. Just absolutely hard as nails. And and I'll just say it, too, because I want to get it. I I, not to get it off my chest, but I just want to say it, too. It reminds me movies like this. There's a lot of grief between Europe and the United States. Right. And a lot of back and forth and a lot of insults back and forth. And I think. People in Europe have to remember what our people did here for them. Right. We were obviously involved and invested in World War Two, but had other fish to fry, of course on the other side of the world. And so it's not like a we we saved you kind of thing. It's just like we got to remember this this shared humanity between the two societies. Like so many of us died there, right? And it was important for us to do that. But it these kinds of movies also remind you of that humanity from person to person. Dudes just getting cut down when they're 18, 17, 19 years old. 3,000 miles from where they're from, they don't even get one step off the fucking landing craft and they're done and they're out and it cuts off their whole line and it happens to thousands of people. And of course, Europeans are the great victims of World War II in some way. Well, some they're also the the fighters of World War II, depending on what part you're from. But I think that that's important, too, that we have to kind of somehow remember our we are European in some way. Right. Like and we have to remember this connection we share. And I think that that 
that blood, that literal blood going into the soil. I mean, how much more symbolic does it get than that? Yeah, well, so I wanted to uh, bring this up because I don't know that I had any experience like this, but I had multiple people write in about this. So I want to acknowledge it. Austin Clements wrote in yo and said, hey, fellas, hey, Saving Private Ryan is a deeply nostalgic film for me. My grandfather showed me this violent and beautiful film at the ripe age of seven. Oh, as a young man that grew up in World War II America. I'm sure this film hit home for him. It was the only time I ever saw my grandpa cry. And I'll remember that moment till the day I die. Did you guys have any similar experiences with this movie? As always, love you guys and keep up the great work. A lot of people wrote in about this, about seeing it with their grandfather and the inability of them to watch it, the obsessiveness with it, Mm. the avoidance of it. For some of these men, this is what was in their minds and had never been explained to anyone. And then they just saw it again in Spielbergian terms, the most readily appreciated visual display of fucking Normandy since Normandy. That must have been pretty heavy. Have, did you know anyone that was affected by it by, like that? Because our grandfather was in World War Two, but sure. he was in Asia and he was dead by that point. And our dad's dad right. was also deceased by this point. But yeah. he was in Asia, I think, as well. I don't think either of them were in Europe at all. So I could be wrong. About no, that. I don't but I think, think both so. Both of them were fighting the Japanese. So I think you're right. Which was also violent and actually technically way more horrifying than your, the European theater. That's why I think we don't see very much of it because it's hard to glamorize uh, the baton death march. But um, nonetheless, what do you make of this idea of of the sentimentality, the sadness, the the fucking PTSD that this must have caused people? Then again, going back to that idea that we don't have any footage like this of Normandy. It's not like fucking Hamburger Hill like that shits on camera. Right. You know, there's actual (laughs) real footage of that. Right. Yeah. (laughs) We have an idea of what was going on there. So what do you think of that? It's a very relatable sentiment. I mean, I I wonder with Austin's story, if his grandfather had seen it first and still had the conviction to say my seven year old grandson needs to see this or if they kind of entered into it together for the first time um, that I would be very curious about that, because I'm thinking about this in terms of my almost 12 year old. And I wouldn't show him this movie because. He's sensitive like I am. And I, I don't know. I don't know what 11 or 12 year old is ready for this kind of seeing, you know, to them, gunplay is Fortnite, right? Or whatever, you know, maybe Call of Duty at the worst to see it presented in such a realistic manner. You wonder, you know, being ready for that or not. And I guess there's varying levels of maturity and stuff. There was one, but again, very relatable. Now, our grandfather, I was lucky enough to have him. In the 80s, what we had, again, was Vietnam movies. And he did make an effort to kind of usher me along and sort of guide me through that. I remember him taking me to see Casualties of War, for instance. And I know I've discussed this before, which is a rather disturbing Vietnam movie. Very, you know, one of those films that doesn't glorify the American side. It's obviously uh, largely about the atrocities that soldiers, these specific soldiers commit there and how you know, debauched it was in this particular case. And grandpa, because, you know, if if we had World War II movies in the 80s, he might have taken me to see those. But this was the closest approximation. And he made an effort to, you know, I was probably around my son's age, 11 or 12 years old when he did that specific thing. And I think there is something there with wanting to instill a sense of 
reality to the next generation, the people that you're bringing along, whether it's acknowledging sacrifice or putting things in perspective, showing how lucky you are to, to be here and how these people earned you, you know, sort of paved the way for your freedoms and all that kind of thing. I think there's definitely something to that. And I wonder how much that's changed with the current generations now, us being the arbiters of that or, you know, instilling to the next generation. Hopefully not too much of that has gone by the wayside. But, you know, it's definitely a relatable notion. And it is like you said it so perfectly, Kyle, the first half hour of this film, I feel like it's still kind of a rite of passage. Again, really in having as a 48 year old man, a particularly sensitive one and someone adverse to gore, but it's feeling like, okay, I got to really steel myself to watch this because it feels so realistic. The horrors of war, the, sh- the shell shock, just the general shock, the horror of these young kids being 17, 17, 18, 19 years old being marched off to you know, the slaughter, you know, largely a slaughter. And it's unthinkable. They don't know anything. They don't know anything. No context whatsoever, except whatever training they had. Right. And then seeing the bravery, that was another thing that struck me too. Yes. You have the, the kids that are trembling on their way to the drop and throwing up over the side of the boat, but you also have the ones young and old that, and battle seasoned and not, and mostly not that seemed like they were stoic. They were, they had their, warrior face on you know that that level of selflessness and courage is something i always channel in movies like this yes it's fiction but it's presented in such a realistic way that you again you automatically put yourself in these people's position and you're like i I don't know if i could ever do that i honestly have to get real with myself and if i was put in that position would i be you know the the upham coward surrogate or would i be somebody that could like 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 cap like Captain Miller, right? Where you could actually just do your job with some modicum of bravery. I don't know. I honestly don't know. I have to question that. Yeah, I don't. I don't know either. I think that these men, these boys, were patriots, and they were going to get drafted anyway. But a lot of them signed up, volunteered, and all over the United States. Sure, millions of them, and. I think largely they were ready to go, but I think I think what what I love about the especially the intro, but the entire thing, especially with the up and character who we'll talk about much more deeply later, is they show all of it. They show the valor and the fear and the blood and gore. And I'm wondering, Dave, because. Well, let me get this uh, George Tidwell inquiry in here from Patreon. He says, greetings, gents. Greetings. I remember seeing this movie when I was young in my early teens and seeing the opening sequence showing the true horror of violence and war really resonated with me up until that point. Any action I had seen in a movie was supposed to be fun or cool, Mm. but nothing like this. It felt gritty and absolutely tragic. Did you guys have any experience uh, similar when seeing it for the first time? Thank you, George, for writing in. Wanted to get that in because it's exactly how I feel about it. And I was wondering how you feel about this notion. I'm not a dad, Mm. right? But and and you're talking about your son, you know, being like a, you know, a preteen and whatever. I would feel like I would want to sit my kid down pretty young, younger than that. And again, having no context for parenthood. So yeah, just, sure. just what's in my head, sure. just to be like, you watch this. This is what happens in real life, right? This actually happened just like this. 
So when you're going to go play Call of Duty or you're going to fucking hear about war in the news or it's going to be glamorized and how cool weapons of war are and bombs and guns and all that's cool. Whatever. Practice your Second Amendment, play your war games, do whatever. But just remember that this is real. This is actually the way it goes. What you are playing is actually that this is the way it plays out in the real life. As long as you know that, like that's the context and the grounding that one I think would need to just be like, it's not funny, right? And Fortnite isn't real and Call of Duty isn't real either. And as long as you can kind of make those connections, have at it, do whatever you got to do. But I think that that would be something to instill very early in someone to scare them. You know, to be like, blood is real. Guts are real. When a bullet flies through the air and tears through. It's like, I don't know. I, I feel like that would be something that would shock someone into a into a sort of. Uh, a clarity. Sure. About uh, and make them. Fa- I never had that foundation in anti-violence. At all. In fact, we grew up in a Republican family. Largely, it was not. There's nothing anti-violent about it. And. And in Long Island is a pretty conservative place and the United States is a pretty conservative place and all that. And I feel like we don't go out of our way enough to say to use the tool of war to say this is why you should never want it. Sure. This is this is what happens when it goes too far. This is what the sacrifice looks like. This is what people your age had to watch on newsreels in the movie theater or later on on TV during broadcast or on the radio. And I feel what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that that, that could be used as a tool? Because, you know, I mean, you have sure. two kids, Absolutely. but I just feel like scare the shit out of them. Yes. They know in their heads, just like, you know, at some point, like you, it, you formulate in your mind this vision of sex when you're a kid and then you kind of like fill in the gaps and you understand it and then it becomes something you really get. Yeah, I feel like violence is kind of similar. They see shit on the news and they wonder what that's what that is. And to show them, to warn them. Right. I think is a powerful thing. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of validity in everything you just said, Kyle. I think as a parent to me, and of course as a parent who's always learning and evolving, hopefully getting better as I go, you kind of balance the scales between being protective and wanting to educate. And me being kind of a touchy-feely, sensitive type, I think I do kind of veer towards protectiveness, maybe to a fault. Sometimes, actually, and it reminds me of growing up because you very well know the story. You know, our mom and dad were they had kids very young. They were 22 when they had me. I was born in late in 73. They were raging hippies. And when I started getting into action figures, specifically collecting Star Wars figures late in the 70s, early in the 80s, I was not allowed to have their guns. They would take the guns from the action figures and they kept them in a little toy uh, treasure chest for me and then at some point a year or two or three later they gave them to me and said it's okay now and then I so I think of that level of protectiveness which largely probably came from mom because she was the one that was home while dad was working and then I think of what I just said about grandpa who was sort of forcing my hand and taking me to see casualties of war when he could have taken me to see any number of G-rated movies, Secret of Nim or a Disney film, Black Cauldron at that time, whatever it was, and opted to take me to see the PG-13 or the R movie. So my education kind of walked the line between those two things. But I do think it's important to educate as well, just in terms of, again, like you said, showing, if anything, to negate the glorification of violence. Because you and I love to play video games. We're deeply engrossed in the uncharted series right now we're killing pirates left and right 
We're, yeah, we're he's a mass murderer. Drake kills like a thousand people in that series, right? Probably. And it's yeah. entertainment, but. Right. Or we, you know, when Vice City came out, you, you and I for days were glued to the television set and running people, running over prostitutes running and over. Pete driving with PJ in real life, and then him, him not being able to not be like GTA in real life as well. Able to separate the two things, <laughs> reality from fantasy. But you know what I mean. Like you want to make sure your kids have that same s- sort of setup where they could decipher fantasy from reality and acknowledge now our kids are also grow i guess every generation grows up with something but now i think of this rash of shootings mall shootings school shootings Mm -hmm. so they're getting that education so but it is important to instill i really thought a lot about showing graden this movie and how i thought it would go i just don't think he's personally ready for it but I have to kind of steal myself for the day that he's ready to watch us or his curiosity gets the better of him and he wants to sit down so I could be there to be with him, to explain things to him to the best of my knowledge and all that kind of stuff. Because when mom and dad were protective of me, specifically with films growing up and the advent of cable and having Showtime and HBO in your house and Skinamax and all that kind of stuff, their protectiveness made me go the opposite way. It just developed my curiosity to a point where I would sneak, right? So you want to kind of balance it where they feel like, I guess it's really all about communication, you know, and and just knowing inherently when they're ready, specifically each kid is ready to be educated. And it's funny to talk about this film in, the, in that way, because it is a, it's a, it's a work of fiction, but it's so strongly based on reality that I think this is one of those films that you could have that conversation with your child around. So, yeah, there's a lot of validity in that. Yeah, it's something to consider. I mean, I, again, I'm just shooting from the hip, pardon the pun, because I don't I don't have kids to worry about in that way. And I remember the way we were raised, or I guess it's really more me than you, but because I, I, my mom and dad were pretty much done by the time I was born, I think. And so I wasn't really very well guarded from any of this stuff. Like I was doing watching whatever I wanted, basically. I mean, no one really knew. I just didn't have access to much. If the internet wasn't a thing in my life until I was twelve, and by that time, you know, you're looking at your friends' dads' titty magazines. And you're doing all I was <laughs> absolutely you know? those rights of. I mean, think right. about it from this perspective. Just in terms of Steven Spielberg films, Indiana Jones, right? Mm-hmm. Think about the not the way the Nazis are represented in those films. Yeah, camp that very bad guys wear black, not too far removed from the Westerns of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. That same kind of mentality where that bad versus good, white versus black, right? The specific garb, the tone, the attitude, compared to something like Private Ryan. For me, it's also kind of a curiosity because I want to see if my kids could decipher between those two things, you know, a popcorn work of entertainment presented in a stylized way versus something that's much more realistic and based in fact. So that's another thing for me where my curiosity is peaked as my kids get a little older now to see if they're ready to not only be able to endure that, but to tell the difference between the two things And I think that's part of growing up. And I think that's part of a normal psychological and emotional development, if that makes sense. And I think that's why it's important, you know? Yeah, it's interesting to 
to think even about the deeper messages, because I think violence and the, the cost of violence is like the is the lower tier message. The higher tier message is one that I think you have to be older to understand. And I think that's like lessons of valor, lessons of bravery, lessons of sacrifice, risk. Sure. Evil. I think existential questions of will you exist? Do you, you have to go? I mean, th- th- we don't understand. We just don't get it. And even reading about it, you're, we just don't get it. And we're never going to get it. Never going to get it. <laughs> but we're never going to get it because there wasn't, we've never been in a, in a situation in our lives where it's like, if you lose this, you might, they're going to come here. Yeah. Like, and then we're going to deal with them here. And at the very least, you can imagine like we would have some sort of tenuous peace with Nazi Germany. Maybe the Japanese just wanted to hit us and get us out of there. They weren't ever going to come here. Right. But we don't know what would have happened if we didn't fight back. We've never been in that situation. We didn't have to go to Vietnam. We didn't have to go to Korea. We didn't have to go to Persian Gulf and Iraq and Afghanistan. None of that was an existential thing. So we've never as a society had to deal with that level of valor. Right. Everyone doing what's necessary. I think one of the really cool scenes in the movie actually is, uh, are the scenes that take place in the United States with the, the women typing because it's all females and then older men. Right. And it's, there's just a lot telegraphed in those messages though. And of course, Ryan's mom home alone, right? Presumably widowed boys off to war. There's a lot portrayed in those that just kind of tells you what the story is. Loneliness, gender separation, Everyone are. I mean, I'd be gone. Even even me, you may be a little bit old, but they would have had to have I would have had to go do something and they probably would have used me as an anchor for a ship or something. like that. <laughs> I think the other thing, too, that's cool about this is that it's it's a look at the army. When we talk about the Japanese engagement, we're mostly talking about the Navy and the Marines and that stuff shaped their whole mantra going forward like the, the marine corps and world war ii are that's like the stuff you know you t- the guys tell each other about and there's legends and there's all this kind of crazy shit and all this the heinous stuff that happened there right and we know a lot about a lot of that the army is this much more amorphous thing that we don't think too deeply about and that this is their thing and i think that that's kind of interesting too and what's fucked up is that should we have gone and invaded japan had we not nuked them and they ultimately surrendered these same guys were going to be sent over to there to do the same thing. Yeah. In Japan, where it's going to be heinous Can you imagine? compared to this, you know, absolutely heinous. And they almost these guys almost got sent to both of those beaches. And could you have imagined the, the survivors of both of them coming out of that? It's unthinkable. We would have lost a million people probably doing that. And like Soviet level losses for a year or something like that. The Soviets lost like 12 million people or something. It's unbelievable. That it's so I think the lessons are very much stepped and tiered. Violence is almost the one that's easiest to portray, but all the things that are much more ethereal are the ones that I think kids and older, you know, older children and then teenagers and stuff are going to have a harder time to grasp the whys, the hows, what, like why I, I can't help but think when I, I watch war movies, why are we doing this? <laughs> it really does resonate through everything to me. 
I can't. I'm watching Game of Thrones, something fictional, and they're fucking destroyed. It's like, what is going on here? Yeah. Why are you doing this? And and just the mechanized nature of World War Two just makes it scarier. And um, it's not romantic anymore. In other words, right. I think there's a lot of romance around the brief engagement America had in World War One, where like America kind of got its feet wet again, like on the global stage and it was kind of coming out. And there's a hell of a lot of romance about the Civil War, which is crazy. But there is as far as like, you know, the 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 uh, the documentaries and the, the, the Shelby foot talking in his southern drawl about <laughs> the boys on the battlefield. You know, it just it's just all lost here. It's just horror. Yeah. I wonder if that's and, distance, yeah. like something like the Civil War. I wonder if that's just distance, you know, Maybe, where, where yeah. it's like, you know, the, it's it's romanticized because everybody that alive, it's forgotten. The horror, the atrocity, the the loss, the catastrophe, like that's put aside for the stories and like you said, the romance. Right. It's 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 interesting. I, I, before I move on, because I have a bunch of individual questions I want to get through that get us into some of the characters that I want to talk about. Sure, in some of the sure. moments. But I wanted to ask you about um, this from Trevor Varang. He says, hey, boys. Yay. So would you rather land on the beaches of Normandy mm. or drop in behind enemy lines with the airborne? Ooh, that's a. I, I don't know. I don't. That's tough. I don't know. I mean, because. When you're and we actually meet some of them, we see this much more in Band of Brothers, but we meet one of the guys that's down with his and he's talking about the plating, the armor, like making it hard to fly. Yeah, great scene. And so these guys were getting cut to shit by by a flak when they were flying in and then they had to jump out. None of them landed where where they were supposed to be. So they were in 10 miles in or something in France (laughs) by themselves. So that's your one option. That's one option. So you're you're behind enemy lines and you're surrounded by them or you can roll up on the beach where they have all of their guns pointed and mind the entire beach, which is just you're a fish in a barrel. Right. So that's your those are your options. I, I guess I'd want to be with the airborne. Me too. Maybe you have a better chance, but the gruesomeness of of Normandy tamps down i mean that's what it's about really in the beginning is them trying to get one of the the beach heads right yes. like trying to get one of the pill the pillboxes right and so like once that's captured then like nothing really happens like people are able to come on kind of safely the airborne are in the shit the entire time that's a good until they can too. somehow meet up with each other right right like they're trying to come towards each other now and, and pincer everyone in between them right so i don't know what would you want to do yeah i think the airborne sounds a little more appealing just slightly but I have to ask a question that I don't know. Is there some sort of established rule of engagement that you can't shoot parachuting human beings? Like, obviously, taking out airplane people inside of airplanes is a known. Well, I don't. Th- act th- of I don't warfare. think. So. I don't think that that's a rule. No. So you can I actually just peg so. dudes that are falling via parachute. Yeah, like, that's why you do it at night. Okay. You know, so that like not only can the flak miss the planes, but that like your people are not necessarily seen as you do it down. under the cover of dark. Yeah, I would okay. assume you'd have to be pretty close to make that an accurate thing because small guns target. are like the, the gravity's immediately taking the bullets down. Anyway, sure. you know, so sure. good point. But I don't I don't know. That's like a whole f- the, the physics and all of that is underrated. And I'm not smart enough to deal with that. But yeah, that's especially a good question. I don't know. If that's in then, the, right. I don't know. If that's in the Geneva Convention. Ironically, for all of the horror that Nazi Germany was was um, doing at that time and capable of, they did 
play by the rules of war generally, which was interesting. Take prisoners, et cetera, and right. so on. But, but um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. So you think you would go with the airborne? I, I mean, think it, so. it would be scary as shit, oh but I think God. that that would maybe be... I'd also want to get it over with. Yeah. Like, go first. Like, oh, my God, let's just go. Sure. Jesus Christ. There's you know, something you to are, that. You're so anxious, the probably. The immediacy. These guys had to just wait. They knew it was going to happen. They just didn't know when. Yeah. And it was a secret to everyone. And so you're just kind of like, God, like, let's go. Yeah. It's in, so so it, you choose the yeah. same? I think so. What? No, the, <laughs> I would choose curling up into a fucking ball. Oh is my what I would God. choose. But, yeah. I think either way, I'd be a ball like Sonic coming down, like just roll <laughs> to a ball. Just now. The one thing I don't know if you I don't know if you know this. Those yeah. hedgehogs, those metallic yeah. iron spiky things that wash up on the beach. And I guess they're meant to deter tanks and enemy ships and all that kind of stuff. Right. Right. How did they get those out ahead those are American things that were put out ahead of the invasion, right? How were they put there? How are they? No, placed? no, no. Th- no. The Nazis put those there. Oh, those are Nazi. So those are there yeah. to. Those are de- defensive from the yeah, Nazi defensive. perspective. Yeah, they're there to stop you from. I forget the name of them, but they're there to stop you from being able to like successfully land Land. landers or get because like you should be able to bring the ship up way closer like if you're willing to beach the ship like you don't care about the ship just fucking ride that thing as fast as possible right onto the beach okay you know and so like these things stop you from being able to do that you can't get tanks off of platforms like you're forced to be further out into the water yeah okay and so that's why they're there and there's still a lot of those are still there wow um, and attack to a person that's it because i'm thinking it does give human soldiers actual infantry cover no it does it does but it's yeah those um i would assume the the benefit outweighs that sure which is just that they can't roll i mean you see the guys like they're in waist deep water some of them are in water that you can't stand where you're still swimming that that's a huge advantage to the nazis okay yeah, and they can't roll you know, as opposed to them just rolling you can just again if you're scuttling the ship like just roll up right fucking <laughs> yeah <laughs> So I think that that's uh, I think I totally understand what you're saying. It's cool. It's cool. Watch them all gather around them. But when when the landing happens. But yeah, that's that's a defensive mechanism. OK. From the Nazis. Right. I forget what they're called. Hedgehogs, um, right? Yeah, maybe that is what they yeah, You said that hedgehogs. Yeah, I think right, so. Right. So, yeah, let me just make sure here. Oh, I, before we get off of Normandy, because it is so inter- you know interesting to talk about. I do just love the use of blood, sound, water, the camera going underwater and then back above and then underwater again the bullets tracing through the water and hitting people dude picking up his arm and screaming oh my god there's just it's just horror after horror after horror and i just wanted to i i just i think it's one of the greatest scenes in film history i really do it's just so it's such an accomplishment and it's so insane if you showed i don't know like if it wasn't so Hollywood, because people would have an eye for that. Like if you showed the dailies of that to and and cropped out all of the the accoutrements of production. And in 500 years, you were like, this is World War Two. They'd be like, holy shit. And they and they would believe it. And, and you could probably pass pass it off as that. Like, seriously, I think you're right. It's it's incredible. Right on down to the uniforms. Actually, I was talking to uh, Micah's parents were both in the Coast Guard. That's where they met. Oh, and wow. I was talking. I was talking to them about. 
how much I love insignias like the, And I don't know if you know the answer to this, but where the different insignias come from, you know, how everyone has their own symbols in their units, not just the airborne eagle, but it gets like deeper, like the yin yang thing. And sure, there's like, you know, knives and, and skulls and all the different things. And actually, I just saw one yesterday. The Space Force released a new one, which is really cool for one of their units where it's like a it's like a, a sphinx head, like looking up at, a, at Polaris and like a triangle. Oh, like, these cool. are so dope. Are you in, do you do you share like well I have a Cobra logo but do you share that love of of iconography in American military you know what I'm talking Absolutely, about of like, course do you know anything about that like there's got does the Department of Defense like do they have artists or yeah something they that must have right they must have a small art or graphic design department where there's people that they're in charge of that and the, the the fascinating thing about it is not just the art which is awesome but the vetting process like who do they go to to approve that. You know, who says yes, who says no, who's right. kind of the art director of all that kind of thing. It's fascinating. Yeah, I'm it's absolutely awesome. enamored with that. Yeah, I love that because it transcends some of these units go back to the revolution and, and, you know, the War of 1812 and stuff like that. And they presumably share all this iconography through all of the many generations. That's so why cool. I, I think yeah, it's like a fraternity in some way. And yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that out there because you see some of those in this movie. Not too much of it, but I love that shit. I think that's so cool. You see that more in... um in Generation Kill, I think, actually. In, yeah, a little bit in movies. there, too, sure. All right, let's get into some of this that we got from the audience, some more of this, I should say. Let's start with, um, hmm, let's start with Clark Petrie. Yo, Clark. He says, Brothers M, I would like to pour one out for Private Caparzo. Mm. Certainly Vin Diesel's first role of significance. In the wake of Fast and the Furious, I actually find him a little distracting in Saving Private Ryan because he's so distinctly Vin Diesel and Dom to me. <laughs> Yet, despite... Loving Tom Hanks and a multitude of other roles. He doesn't pull me out of the movie. Any insights on this? I, was, I suppose it's likely a facet of their acting and the variety of roles I've seen Tom Hanks in. So let's focus more on the Vin Diesel a- aspect of this right now. We could talk about Tom Hanks, of course, and we will. But I want to start with uh, Vin Diesel. I think some younger people are going to be surprised he's in this. And this is his first movie of prominence. And I think he's really good in this. In fact, I think the whole cast is... Pretty convincing, full of quite a few characters from that late 90s, early 2000s. Like Giovanni Rabisi is another one of those guys who was just there for yeah. a while in this in this time. Sure. So, yeah. What do you make of uh, Vin Diesel's performance as private first class Adrian Caparzo? And and um, are there any of the other bit players that you want to call out as well? Yeah. I mean, I love seeing him in here because it's it is part of that late 90s, early aughts nostalgia. Our Dom Toretto, Iron Giant dude and he doesn't you know he's such a big guy now in the and almost crossed over into camp but i think yeah for some reason he just works really well and i know spielberg was really insistent in him he might have been one of the first people casted but i love that late 90s flavor not just with vin diesel but as you said kyle giovanni robisi barry pepper would certainly fall into that category definitely tom sizemore uh, so there's so many wonderful and Ed Burns, you know, sort mm-hmm. of that, that specific camp of actor who never became like a Leo DiCaprio or a Brad Pitt or a Bradley Cooper, but their mainstays and maybe a little less known now, although everybody's still kind of involved in this and that, especially with the advent of, of, uh, straight to subscription series and stuff like that Giovanni Rabisi specifically I could think of but they're very their actors very sort of known to that period and sort of bring you back to that period and never really got to the height of heights of acting just kind of those 
mainstay character actors. So it was really fun seeing him. But I I think Vin Diesel's really good in that. He gets a lot of shit, Vin Diesel, but I think he's okay. I think he uh, definitely doesn't take me out of the film. I agree with Clark on that one. Yeah, it, me neither. In fact, I really love that scene in that French village where he takes the kid. Yeah, good stuff. And he dies. First one um, to go. Right, but it's it's so interesting to... he We don't... Because these are like vignette. It's like a vignette, basically. We get just a little bit of him. Like he has a love for a niece or a daughter, you know, or something like that, or a right. sister or something that he, he grabs this little girl. It reminds him of him. Like it's just... His death is a is a, a shadow of his life and... And it's like reflecting who he is because we don't really ever otherwise get to know him. We know it's Vin Diesel. I mean, it's impossible to watch it. And it's not like it's Vin. OK, it's Vin Diesel, <laughs> but it, it's totally fine. It's like when Paul Giamatti shows up, who's awesome. Brian Cranston shows up. It's like, oh, Brian, there's Brian Cranston. You know, there's Ted Danson. So good. It's so it's all, and then, like you said earlier, they're, they're all excellent. But yeah, I love Vin Diesel's performance in this. Let's talk about um, Upham. Mm. Dylan Lockyer wrote in, said, at ease, General Dagan and Colonel Colin. What do you make of Upham's cowardice in the film? Every time I watch his failure to save Mellish in the final battle, it's beyond frustrating. I find his embodiment of crippling fear pretty powerful and how sometimes that's the reality of war. It's a sobering thought that you could be the coward on the battlefield only to doom others to die. Thanks for an amazing show as always. Yes. Um, Upham's a challenging character. Very, very, very good performance of Upham Jeremy Davies and in it's sad to say he isn't he like isn't he the surrogate for the audience in some way I mean that's that's kind of how I always felt about him like he's us because what the fuck are we gonna do Uh, you know that's kind of how I felt about his character it's interesting and I don't you can't really blame him he it's a very it's a lot of tension because he's not he wasn't brought here to do this no like he says I haven't fought anyone since since I we were in camp and I'm a translator and a map maker and all that. Right. Um, so he is a coward and he is responsible for Mellish's death and he doesn't kill anyone until like towards the end. And it's frustrating to watch, but I've always looked at him as like the surrogate for like how the audience would feel or how the audience does feel, especially the first time through about how scared you'd be and how you'd, so you can get it. And I like how it doesn't shy. Even though it's, a, again, a tale of valor. It's the multiple levels. It's a tale of valor. But somewhere in the tale of valor is always a tale of cowardice. It's always a tale of person doing the wrong thing. The person making the wrong choice. The person abandoning his post or not fighting or not engaging and not doing what he needs to do. It is a chain of people and you have to pull. And so it is sad to see that. But that's reality. Right. That's faked in to the war game. Right. So what do you make of uh of what what is him yeah i have it here technician fifth grade timothy upham yeah upham i mean first of all i don't remember being so enamored with jeremy davies performance it's really cool i mean it's really a unique grounded special performance it, the, just the acting style i don't even want to say it's acting style because that sounds like it's artifice there's something ultra realistic about the performance um, and he's he's amongst wonderful actors, especially in, in guys like Tom Hanks. Right. But he just takes it to the next level. There's something very special about him. He seems like a real person. He seems like a little bit of a misfit, a little bit of a strange duck. But he something just really works about what he's doing, everything he's doing, little intonations, the nuance, the way he talks, not just what he says. And it's an interesting character. It's a really challenging character. I remember seeing Steven Spielberg talk about this 
in an interview that that was who he saw himself as in the movie. And I think it is largely the audience surrogate because you get so frustrated with the character because you're rooting for these guys and you want to see them succeed, the whole group of them. And he's a part of this unit. You know, he's a link in the chain. But it's hard in the end to get upset with him because you kind of put yourself in his position and you can't really blame him for being, you know, he's completely green. You know, he's got no combat experience. He's a translator, a cartographer, a writer, whatever. He wants to take his typewriter along with him. Like, this guy is not a combat. He has no combat experience whatsoever. So put yourself in that position. I'm actually kind of struck by how courageous he is until he falls apart. You know, he's going back and forth with the bandoliers and he's taking them ammo. And eventually that shell shock and that horror sets in. But I don't even know if I would have gotten as far as he got. You know, I have to be honest. So it is interesting. And again, painting that realistic portrait of what it would be like to be in that battle, in Rommel, in that battle against a German unit, outnumbered, out-armored, outgunned, and just trying to hold this place, trying to hold this bridge and everything like that. It's just, it, you really put yourself in the, in the position it becomes personal. And that's just fucking awesome filmmaking, man. What do you think about his relationship with this German soldier, that he has. I looked up this actor, by the way, Jorg Stadler, German actor. Mm. And he's awesome. So good. He's great. It's you can fear like when he's digging the grave and then he's like running out of it and like or they're jumping back in it and like trying to keep digging or whatever. It's so I don't know. I, I, I like I like the exploration of that, too, in the relationship with because he's the only one that can speak German amongst them. The relationship he, he develops with uh, with Upham. But what do you make of their kind of relationship and how it, how it kind of comes back? He kind of does come back to the line. He was lying to them. He is a gunner. And and you see, but he was doing what he has to do to survive. There's a lot of humanism in it. I mean, this guy's a human, just like a flesh and bone, just like you. It's like, what do you do? Yeah. And so what do you make of that connection and and his. I don't know his. um what do you want? What do you want to even call it? It's like he's trying to carve a path for this dude to get away and like try to save his life. But what does he owe him? And and they, they were just shooting on them before. And I don't know. What, what do you make of them? Yeah, that German soldier there. It's a great performance, a great moment because, you know, he's the enemy. But you really feel his fear, his you know, he's frightened. That fear is palpable. He's digging the grave and he's trying to, he's basically begging for his life the best way to know his house, citing, you know, Steamboat Willie and Betty Grable and Betty Boop and all that kind of stuff. And you almost feel bad for him in that moment. And it is another dimension for the Upham character too, Kyle, because he is one of the only ones of the American, you know, our heroes who shows humanity in that moment. But it all, and that's interesting because that takes a certain type of attitude, especially in that moment. Think of being in that moment. You're with these guys, maybe even through training. You're with them for many months. They become friends. Your lives depend on each other. You're out there in the field. Think of losing one or two of them. The anger, the fury you would feel. First of all, your cause is already righteous. I mean, you're fighting, you're unified against this straight up evil force. It's not like something, 
more modern where it's Vietnam and there's gray areas and maybe it's a little your your purpose is a little less defined like you're already you already have that sort of stance and then you're losing people that are important to you and just think about it, that feeling and being in that moment wanting to take a prisoner you just want to strangle this guy you know you want to shoot him in the head and put him in that pit but the other thing about Upperman is he does show that humanity. He shows that human dimension, that empathy or that mercy. But also the interesting thing about Upperman is he's new to the group. He doesn't have, there's not that same gravity for him. He doesn't know these guys like they know each other. So he's a new member of the fam, this family. So he has, there's less stakes, I guess, for him or, you know, less attachment, which is also an interesting thing to consider. But I love the way each character is defined through, you know, through that sort of crisis of, you know, do you take mercy on this guy? Do you let him go? Will your anger and your inhumanity get the best of you? In that case, how much better are you than the your enemy and the, the people you're fighting? So there's a lot of theme in there to explore and I love the way again that sort of sculpts and defines each character how they act in that situation it's super cool it's something as simple as the language divide that dehumanizes these people or each other to each other right and that's a since great point. is the one that can can conquer that it's it's impossible to it's impossible to ignore a human who you can understand who's not quite as other anymore. I think there's something to that as well. And it, it is interesting. Yeah, he is an outsider. He is pulled in because their translator is killed on Normandy. So, so he, he didn't, it, and that's why I think he's a more sympathetic character in some ways, just that I, I, he didn't anticipate being here. Yeah. He didn't ask this. for that. Right. No. Okay. Let's see. Caleb Greer wrote in, Yo. said greetings, Colin and Dagan. I'll go ahead greetings. and bring it up. What the actual fuck was that slow, visceral stabbing scene with Private Mellish oh, and the German man. soldier? Had you ever seen anything like that up to that point when you first watched this film? And how did it make you feel in the moment? I think I get why Spielberg's trying to convey by what he's trying to convey by giving the most intimate death to an overtly Jewish character. You're dismissed. Thank you, Caleb, for writing. You can't be dismissed yet. <laughs> we still have more. We have still more of the show to do. So <laughs> Mellish is an interesting character. Yeah, mm. they they he is an overtly Jewish character, which is cool. And um, he's played by Adam Goldberg fish and he's <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know much about who this character was based upon or whatever. I'd be interested to. There's so much. It's a it's a mystery how much anyone really knew about what the Germans were truly doing to Jewish people. But we knew since the 30s, of course, that they were kicking them out in some ways putting them in ghettos and rounding them up. So we knew things were bad. So this guy obviously comes forward being a practicing Jew, presumably in the United States, that he would he would come with some of that extra tension built inside of him. And, and a lot. And, and there's a lot of great scenes when he's crying on the beach and he's he's a really wonderful performance. That scene is rough and Upham is responsible for that. And I don't know, man, it, I, I think that it, it is brutal. Again, it's it's very much like Normandy. It's this is. <laughs> One v one me, bro. Okay, uh, this is what a one v one in the real in real war looks like, and your fight for your life. It's fucking terrifying. And what sucks is that Mellish introduces the knife into the fight, which I don't think I ever really thought about, and that's mm. kind of too bad. Like maybe it could have ended a little differently had he not done that. But I don't know, man. I don't. What do you, What do you think about that whole scene? 
Yeah, that's it's heart wrenching. And, you know, again, talk about personal. I love the point you made about the language barrier, Kyle, but also like now it's not fighting across the divide or across a town shooting machine guns at each other. You're fighting hand to hand. So the, the horror is at war of war really at play, you know, man versus man, enemy versus enemy, hands around each other's throat. The Mellish character, similar to Rybin and Caparzo, a very distinct East Coast flavor. I mean, Mellish feels like any number of dudes I, I grew up with in the Northeast, in New York, on Long Island. Again, same for Rybin, same for Caparzo. I know that was very intentional casting to make these guys feel like they were from, you know, New York area, Northeast, greater tri-state area, whatever. And I love the fact that he's a Jewish character and he kind of wears his heart on his sleeve with that. He's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. I don't blame him for that at all, rightly so. I love that character trait of rubbing in that, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish. Look, check out my Star of David and all that kind of thing. Now, the ironic thing about his murder is that was the Nazi youth knife that the Caparzo character gives to him that finds on a, a fallen German soldier and gives to him. Hmm, that he tries to pull out in the battle which is a a great irony and so much irony at play in the scene because had they killed the german soldier you know had it not been for upham's interference and then of, of course miller's call to let this guy go he wouldn't have been it's so interesting that that guy returned to the battle like he we know he was clearly faking you know that he he loved americans and all that kind of stuff like this guy was that's the most chilling aspect of this thing is this guy was out for blood. He was captured, barely escaped with his life and went right back into the battle. Like that's how committed this guy was to the cause. To, so to see that sort of commitment on the German side is just chilling. It's just a really chilling thing. You know, that scene of, of the soldier walking by up him on the stairs, oh too, is God. what do you make of that? And he just kind of gives him it's mercy for mercy. And it shows you know, we know this guy's the enemy. We know he's a Nazi, so he's a monster, but there's some humanity at play there too. You know, he exchanges, he it's a favor for a favor. He could have very easily killed Upham in that stairwell. And he doesn't. He acknowledges that Upham is why he's alive. So that's another chilling aspect as you see the humanity of the enemy, at least the fairness. Or, you know, whatever kind of rule of engagement he's honoring there. So it's it's so unbelievable. And that whole wrestling match between Mellish and the German soldier with the other guy gasping for air because he was shot in the throat and they're rolling over. This guy's yeah. dying and they're rolling yeah, over him. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. I forgot it's about that. It's unbelievably chilling. I mean, it's just really hard to watch. Like that, that sort of disturbing aspect from the beach laying at landing at Normandy kind of plays out all the way through the final battle in Rommel. You know, it's just, it, it, it comes in, it comes in waves. You are kind of relieved when Normandy's over, but you're going to be, you're going to be kind of like stamped awake again a few more times, definitely throughout the course of the film. All right, let's get this next one from Daniel Pinocchi. Yo, Pinocchi. He says, Hey lads, the scene of the medic calling for his mummy. I guess you're British. Whilst approaching the impending <laughs> darkness, knowing full well there is nothing that can be done but to be pumped full of morphine, becomes increasingly heartbreaking every rewatch. The death of a medic seems extremely unfair given their role in, in saving others and helping their comrades pass with some dignity. Keep up the good work. What do you, what do you make of the role of the, the medic? This is always a, a fascinating role. Um, Hacksaw, Hacksaw Ridge 
which came out maybe five mm. years ago. That movie was awesome. About that, that movie, movie was about a conscientious objector and a medic, and he, that movie was fantastic. And medics are so important, and these they're also part of the rules of war. You're not supposed to shoot at them, and it's 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 scary. What what do you think about that whole arc with the watching the medic die himself die, and he's trying to tell them what to do, and he's trying to figure out what's wrong with himself, and trying to kind of compute that as he's dying. Mm. And it's a very dark scene. It really is trying to instruct his soldiers on how to help him because he's the one with the medical knowledge, right? Yeah, Giovanni Rabisi's doc character is a, is a great one. When we first meet him on the beach in Normandy, I love the scene where they sort of have the guy, they sort of stabilize the soldier's condition and then he's shot through the head, right? When he stabilizes the other wound and he, he gets up and he's like, give us a chance and they have to hold him back and stuff like that. I love, you know, that passion and again, that selflessness. We talked about this with Doc Eugene in Band of Brothers. Very similar character where it's not for the same reasons. He's not. He doesn't have the same combat pedigree, probably. But just that selflessness and that unselfish nature of wanting to help with your life on the line. I mean, you're in the crosshairs, and you have to, you know, you're you're tasked with keeping these guys alive, and that that amount of pressure on your soul shoulders and the the post-traumatic stress of these guys specifically the medical guys in these situations i mean it must have been absolutely enormous the sense of guilt the sense of loss because it's all in their hands essentially once somebody's wounded so it's interesting and then see yeah that that whole heart he has that heartbreaking scene too where they're talking right before they go to sleep and he's saying like he, his mom was a medical intern and she would come home early sometimes and try to talk to him and he would pretend he's asleep and he didn't know why he did that. And you could just see the regret. Like, am I going to make it home to have another conversation with my mom? And then, of course, 20 minutes later, he's dying on the on the battlefield. And, you know, also that that death is a result of a very distinctive decision that Captain Miller makes to take this gun battery out that wasn't even in their way or part of their mission necessarily yeah what do you think of that what do you make of that why he made that decision that's that's a tricky one because like he says like miller says to mellish what do you want them to mow down the next unit that comes through here and you know again you kind of wrestle with everybody's reasoning because you understand everybody's point of view you know you understand why ribin and mellish are like let's go around it like it's not why risk it there's only seven or eight of us like you know, we're already a, a skeleton crew. Like, why even do this? Like, this isn't our thing. And you could understand Miller's position, too, of like, we can't just leave this German gun installment here to mow down the next group that comes, you know, of, of, of allies that come through here. So it's it's one of those things where you just feel for these guys wrestling with these situ- situation after situation, crisis after crisis. And again, just in understanding everybody's point of view, it's like those decisions must have been so hard to make, right? And then you have to make it as a team. Even if you disagree, you can't just disobey your commanding officer. So your heart really goes out. Again, just putting yourself in that position is just, it's unthinkable. Like I can't even, it's so far detached from my reality, like what these guys went through think about it like this it's even hard to watch this movie which is a dramatic fictional representation of what happened can you imagine actually going through this no i mean i couldn't that's why i think the roger the roger serling character is so interesting on Mad Men for me because although you know obviously 
Draper has his own war stuff as well. But I just find that character so interesting because he is he does struggle from like World War II. Sure. And all of that. That wasn't a fart. I just want everyone to know <laughs> in case you heard it. Chair wasn't fart. A fart. Chair fart. Um, I would I will declare any real farts. I will okay. declare any You'll real be farts. Honest. Okay. Since we've talked, we haven't really talked too much about Tom Hanks's performance. I'm curious what you make of his of his performance in this. It's so good. I love how the the soldiers have like a bet going about who who he where he comes from and what what he does, and we find out that he's a school teacher from Pennsylvania. And I think I've said on a previous episode that one of my favorite shots in this movie is him with his sidearm shooting at the tank. Oh, it's so good. I love I love that shot. I love officers and their sidearms. I think they're so cool when you pull it out in the last resort sort of thing but tom hanks is excellent in this film and he has again I, I like with tom sizemore and others a good accompaniment of people around him to really support him a lot of great performances here yeah matt damon of course comes in later it's so funny because i was thinking about matt damon he comes in late in another movie too i won't say what it is to mm. not spoil it but it's a similar thing and you know what i'm talking <laughs> he about really does we, yeah it's a, it's a movie we've we we've covered on the show I actually so you about can, that. i think yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. That but I'm is. wondering what you, what you make of um, Tom Hanks's performance in Saving Private Ryan. Dude, Tom Hanks is like the gift that just keeps on giving. It's unbelievable. I remember thinking about an, on our Canadian trip on the way home, thinking I have to watch the movie. And I, I don't know why it just got into my head. And I started thinking about Woody from Toy Story. And... Now, Toy Story was already a thing for a few years when this movie came out, so it's nothing new, but I was like, I don't know if I could get past the the Woody character. It's just in my head, that voice. I wonder that how it's going to so be to funny, watch dude. this again. That's Micah was saying that, too. Same thing, yeah. right? Yeah. It has such a... But it's so interesting because he's done so much from the 80s comedies to Forrest Gump to playing the hard-ass FBI agent in Catch Me If You Can. He just wants the Woody, of course, the Pixar stuff... Once the movie starts, no matter what movie it is, but especially Private Ryan, everything, all of that Tom Hanks-ishness melts away and he becomes the character every time. It takes a mere matter of seconds. He's that good. And it's so crazy how he could just melt and shapeshift into a role because he's a famous dude. You know, he's one of the most famous actors. And the fact that he could be all of these characters and we believe it, I know that's the whole thing about acting. That's the whole bent. That's the purpose. But he's so good at it. Besides the warmth and that fatherly nature, you could see him being a leader that everybody responds to and respects and wants to follow unquestioningly. Like he just plays that so well. But it's so crazy that I thought I was going to go into it with that whole Woody angle. And like, I just forgot about it. And even in the movie, when it pops up, especially when he's being very animated or excitable and you hear like, oh, there's a bit of a little bit of Woody in that, you know, it doesn't matter. It just lasts for a blip and then it's gone again because he just becomes the character. And it's just amazing to me, especially with him of you look at his filmography in movies and television that he could do that no matter what. He's one of those dudes that just has that degree of talent and it's, it's just that. He's just a chameleon. Like, there's nothing overrated about him. He's just, he's just a joy, dude. It's a, it's amazing that he was robbed of the, the, the Oscar for this. I like the uh, shot. In case you're watching the video where he's like with the pen or the pencil. <laughs> it's like I'm an amazing 
<laughs> laugh out loud shot. So for sure. he's Tom Hanks is just he's just Tom Hanks. That's just who he is. It's just he's there. There he is. Thank God we have him. Right. It's like one of those COVID dudes. I can't even imagine. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> Which I always think, find so funny. He was like the first person that got it that we knew about. All right. What else here? All right. Let's talk That's about right. before we talk about the real private Ryan. Let's talk about the fake private Ryan. What did you think of that scene when mm. when they, he's telling him about how his brothers died? It's so funny. Right, let's talk more about it. Uh, talk to me about that scene that the, 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 the he's the wrong private ryan oh dude it's so spielberg i mean first of all that's, that's nathan fillion right um, um yeah i think it is yes i think fillion you're here. right holy shit yeah. i don't think i even realized that yeah yeah that's right it's a it's such a spielbergian moment like first of all i love the model we talked about it a little bit and they did this to a larger degree with band of brothers but they had more time and more characters to do this with but i like that thing of there being a journey and then we get surprised with a character who's played by a character actor, a known character actor. So we get that Dennis Farina, Brian Cranston, Ted Danson, Paul Giamatti thing. Meet you. You got to meet them along the way. Same thing, of course, as we said with with Matt Damon. I love that model. I think it's a lot of fun. But yeah, that scene is just so crazy because it's you know a complete miscommunication. You know, he's telling this guy, your brothers died. And that turns so turns out that, you know, his brothers are in grade school still. How did they die? It's and so all good. that kind of stuff. It's so funny. It is one of those Spielbergian moments where it's like, those are the storytelling beats that you remember. And it's also much needed levity in this movie where you could take a breath, take a moment not to be in the thick of the shit. And, you know, just actually just... Be you know, take a breather from the intensity. Yeah, he, it's it's just I don't know. I like that he always sneaks funny things in the movies mm. that are not necessarily funny. Great storyteller. I, I yeah, I agree. Okay, let's talk about Private Ryan, Matt Damon. What do you make of this performance when we finally see him? I was reading that he and a little bit of method acting, I guess, on behalf of Spielberg that they kept him apart from everyone. Mm when they were like all training as soldiers and, and whatnot and kind of getting the taste of things. So I think that that's interesting. And I, I think when we meet, he's, he's not necessarily the protagonist. I, we, I'm kind of lukewarm on Ryan. He's kind of head headstrong and, and not really very thankful for the sacrifice that everyone went through to get to him. Obviously he's been hit with this horrible news and he has his allegiance to his unit as well. But what do you make of this performance? This is the guy we're looking for. This is the private Ryan. The eponymous, or the pinimus, whatever you say, it, <laughs> Private Ryan. Yeah, we finally get get our payoff character. I read, and I don't know how this gels time wise, but, and I don't know how it dovetails, but I read that they purposely cast Matt Damon not only for his talent, but because he was relatively unknown. But somewhere before, I guess they didn't realize somewhere before this movie came out, Goodwill Hunting came out. So he became like a household name and a face overnight because that film was like a sensation. So that was interesting that that kind of tactic blew up in their face a little bit. But it's an interesting character. And, it, you know, the whole premise of this film is really interesting with Matt Damon's Private Ryan at the center of it, because you could understand wanting to, I don't know, diminish a parent's grief by saying, look, three of her four sons are dead. The other sons, you know, 
likely to die if we keep him here. As a gesture of humanity, let's send this guy home so at least this woman has somebody left. So I understand that gesture. It's very interesting. And it's something you wouldn't necessarily expect from the military. So it's already kind of more humanity than you're expecting in a situation like this, especially when you're dealing with a crisis like World War II, where it's like every man is needed. Every man is invaluable, right? In this war effort. But Get then him you ha- out of there. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. <laughs> then you have this gesture. You, you know, you have this character who takes exception to it. You know, he's like, and you understand both perspectives. You understand his perspective of wanting to be in the fight, not wanting to abandon his own brothers, um, wanting to, why does he deserve it over anybody else that's there, whether fighting at his side or fighting, fought to get to him. But then you take a little bit of exception for our heroes. You know, this company of guys who made it through this chaos, right? This horrifying endeavor to rescue him. And then the way they kind of are able to fight shoulder to shoulder in this last campaign. And, you know, Captain Miller's character is able to keep him alive. It's a very interesting premise and a premise supposedly based on one or two things that actually happened over the course of time in the United States, which I think is really interesting. And I was wondering if that Abraham Lincoln letter was real, Kyle. Do you know about that? No, I assume it is. I assume they wouldn't cite that and, and it not be real, but I don't know anything about, it's interesting. about that. Yeah. It's cool that he would have, that's Marshall, General Marshall, I think. It would be cool that he would have that re- the real letter like in a book. These guys, God, aren't they so cool? I'm sorry, like, aren't the OG American generals and, like, the military brass from that era so cool? So cool. They're so cool. We don't have anyone like that anymore. <laughs> yeah, why, why is that no so lost? One. Because I think because these guys were bonafide heroes, and I think that a lot of the people in their positions there are bonafide fucking chuckleheads by comparison. <laughs> That's why. I think the military has become way too precious in the United States. Like not you can't say anything about it. Like you can't make any observations about it. It's fitness. It's ability to win. Right. Like you can't make any. any, any but these guys were fucking men and you didn't have any any. I would say Eisenhower was the last person that represented that. So like 1961 oh, when he was out. Ago. So it's uh I feel like these guys, it's like no offense to the brass of the military today, I guess. But I don't see shades of fucking MacArthur and uh, Eisenhower in them in any way, shape or form. They're not they don't have that winning spirit. And they certainly aren't apolitical people that are trying to help and warn the American people about, Mm. you know, when you think about Eisenhower himself warning about the military's power when he was leaving, he's like, you should really watch for this shit. And he was right. No one listened to him. He was totally right. And that's the last person you would expect. That's what makes him truly heroic. It's the same thing with George Washington. Like George Washington could have had and done anything he wanted. What makes him so heroic is not only his his heroics on the battlefield, but that he gave up power, that he didn't want to abuse it. Right. Eisenhower was saying, like, I I was I've become I've become great for the because of the American military. You better watch out for the American military. And I think that that's a pretty ballsy thing to do. And we don't have people like that anymore. So I don't know. I don't know why that is, but I just don't think. Shit, I'm not acting like I'm anything compared to the greatest generation. I'm a fucking, you know, oh my little God. girl I can't compared to imagine. these dudes. Are you kidding me? 
Like I am a straight up little girl <laughs> compared to those guys. They were made of special stuff, man, that generation. No doubt. All right, Dig, since we're talking about Ryan himself, Pace writes in says saving Ryan's privates. <laughs> Everyone loves saying that, but I love it. That. Was a phenomenal movie. When Tom Hanks's dying words are earn this, then the part at the end when he was an old man in Normandy. Um, and asked his wife, tell me I've led a good life and I'm a good man, etc. Really got me in the feels. You get hit the feeling when he went home, he strived to make his life count and return the sacrifice those men made to bring him home. So it wasn't in vain. Thank you for writing in pace. So what did you make of that? Earn it. I love that because when you go back to the present, I'm not sure that the present day stuff is needed in this movie. I was going to ask you about that. And I guess we can wrap that into this, too. Mm. Like, it's cool, but I don't know that you need it. Mm. I think this could have all been explained by some text or something. I don't know. I'm not I didn't know it's about a work of fiction, but and they're trying to bring that and make it modern. But I wonder what you make of this idea that he had to go home and earn it, because I think this sets in a seed and at least in, it did in my mind that makes you curious. What kind of life did he lead? What mistakes did he make? Who did he hurt and help? And he really is here based on this very specific directive to get him out of harm's way. Sure. And is the beneficiary beneficiary of that, but he goes home to incredible loss and a different society as well. So what do you make of that earn this ending and, and the idea that he has to kind of reflect on that? It's, it's really where in this film, the Spielberg sentimentality seeps in, but it doesn't bother me. It doesn't really bother me. I think it bookends the story nicely, but I have a little bit of compassion for this character because everything that happened and transpired as a kid and then having to live your life knowing that people sacrificed their lives for you puts an inordinate amount of pressure on a person, right? On an individual. And that's interesting. And you know what else just dawned on me as you were talking, Kyle? Not only did they save him by getting to him, but they they basically protected his ass, specifically Rybin and Miller, during that campaign, during that battle at Ramel. They, you know, otherwise Ryan could have easily been dead, specifically had they not showed up. There, I don't think those guys would have made it through that battle. So they really did save his ass. And then to be tasked with that, you know, Miller's dying words of, you know, make it, you know, don't waste it. You know what I mean? Don't don't squander this opportunity, you know, be live and be a good person. And that sort of thing is interesting. One thing that does bother me is the elderly wife at the gravesite when he says, am I a good man? I don't, I think she could apply, uh, replied with a little more conviction. I don't know. She seems like she's wavering a little bit. Like, you know what I mean? Not to she's like, well, <laughs> she's like thinking about what happened in 1966 and, you know, whatever the kind of shit that they went. The hookers and the drinking and all that kind right, of stuff. They were separated a little bit. And <laughs> it's that weird yeah. time. The weird times. Right. Yeah. There's a crisis and right. There are a lot of things. Christ. So, yeah, he's got a so it's it's hard to answer that. He, she wants you to just be candid. But see, the problem I have with the the modern day stuff is that it feels like it's a movie from the 90s. Yeah. And that's too bad because the movie is so expertly done from a 1940-1944 perspective that I wish you could just kind of lop that shit off and just get some sort of like just you just learn about it. Yeah. In the, in the movie or something like you don't need like I, don't, I almost don't feel like you need this directive, but I know that they were really trying to make that very intimate 50 year connection between the events and the people that were there. And 
And like we said, Band of Brothers is the one that really goes into overdrive with that. In a good way, of course, get their stories. That's what's most important. But on this note, Rob Aiken wrote into us and said, Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force Europe, Colin, and Field Commander American Forces Dagan. <laughs> is this mission worth sending anyone out for? Or as the men in charge is getting forces ashore and breaking out more important? Is one specific life more worth more than thousands? You are about to embark on a great crusade. Choose wisely. Thank you, Rob, for that really long title. <laughs> now, it must be important. Now, my honest answer to this is that no. I don't I do not think it's worth it. And I I don't think it's in the nature of war. It is important that they learned from lessons like this. When you think about the letter from Lincoln, it's like, how did the Department of War at the time not think about this and be like, you can't we can't put brothers together in units. And it, I think it got to the point, although we haven't had a draft in many years where like you can't even draft multiple brothers now, I don't think. Right. And whether or not that's right or wrong, I, I think that that should not really be relevant. I think the draft should only happen in existential crises and everyone needs to be on board in, in those. So it's like too bad <laughs> if you're brothers. But it's like a lesson that the government should have known and that they they kept these guys in harm's way and even put them two of them were on the same ship, I think, and stuff like that in this story. It just you, you just that's something you need to figure out beforehand. You can't worry about that once the bullets start flying. I just I do feel for the guys that were sent on this mission because it's it it the the reality is, is that it's a tough gray area. It's like no, I don't I don't think so. I don't think it was right. They they lost more than they gained in doing this. So just from a warfare perspective, it's and and it's a very selective thing to imagine that General Marshall and and the brass would get involved mm. in something like this. It's like don't you have bigger things to worry about? Holy shit. So I, I from that perspective, like I, who would who would look at that and be like, oh, man, like you really should have sent a whole fucking unit to go get this guy. It's like, no, no one would expect that. What do you? And so I think that that's kind of the tough thing. It's a wonderful story. It's a sad story. It's a heartwarming story. But I don't I do not think it was worth it. Yeah, no, I think? hear you. I mean, that's really the compelling thing at the center of this is that it's, it's there's no right or wrong answers to any of this stuff going on. But can you imagine being in this company being a Jackson, a Jackson, being a Rybin, being a Mellish, where you're in no uncertain terms being told that your life is less important than this other guy that we have to go send home. You are being told that, you know, where they say in the film, they all have mothers, they all have family waiting for them to come home. They all have family fearing to see that Western Union dude walk up to the front door. Like everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's family everybody's friends, neighbors, they're all in the same boat. But because this other person had four sons and three of them are dead, you have to send this last one home. So you're more expendable now. You're going to be part of the, you're going to be a tool to bring this other guy home. Why didn't they just enact a thing back then where it's like, if somebody had two sons or if somebody had four sons, you send half, you draft half. I guess the war effort was such that you really, again, you needed every person and also a lot of these people i mean a large percentage of these people right kyle like they wanted to go they went of their own volition it wasn't like they were drafted into the war effort everybody wanted to be a part of this thing because it was a you know not to sound corny but it was a battle of good versus evil you know it was stopping this un, you know this unchecked force that was take slowly taking over the planet or at least they were trying to so it's it's interesting, but I like everything in this film that there's no clear cut right answer that there's a little gray area in all of this. And you could 
it forces you to really look at everybody's perspective. Even if you don't understand everybody's perspective, it forces you to kind of look at it from everybody's point of view. And that's just good that, you know, that's just good, solid storytelling and makes for a memorable story. And really, again, put your, you makes you want to put yourself in that position to think about how you would handle it, what you would do given that situation. Totally. And I think you have to think about it, like you said, from the other perspective, like I, I am not a believer that the rank and file Nazi soldier in the Wehrmacht was like an evil man. I just how can that be? Right. It, it, I just don't think so. I think that they're responsible for what happened to their society as individuals, all of them. But uh, most of the people that were fighting by the time shit goes off are the are, were kids when the Nazis took over and had nothing to do with it. And so they're they're born into this incredibly fucked up fascist society mm. and are doing what they're what's expected of them are some of them pure racist and haters and all that kind of stuff yes but you can even see with the guy that tried to survive the german soldier they're enamored with american and american culture you know oh say can you see oh say can you see like it's it's so funny they know they're, they're normal people yeah they're normal people and I I'm not saying like the, the Nazi brass or fucking normal people, but like the everyday person, I just it does make you you should look at it from that perspective. It puts war in the in the solid focus about what what is worth the sacrifice of just humanity of of ex, of the extinction of whole lines. It's it's oblivion, right? It's just total doneness. And I don't know, it's very deep. And I'm glad you brought up Jackson because I think that character is awesome. I oh, love that character, so great. the sniper. He's awesome. The, the kissing the cross and praying and all that. I I like I like the sniper. The uh, I love that the line when he's like, "That's where I would be." And he finds the <laughs> Barry Pepper, dude. Yeah, I really during this time. And now, if you guys haven't seen, I may have brought this up on Knockback before, but there's a little known movie called Knock Around, guys. Barry Pepper and Vin Diesel, ironically enough, Seth Green, a couple other people. Really low budget movie but a great film basically about a bunch of kids in new york maybe it's jersey but i think it's new york who are the sons of like mafia dudes and they're kind of clamoring to be part of it too and they're kind of sent on this mission as like a vetting thing very campy but i won't i won't say anymore but if you guys could find it highly recommended barry pepper vin diesel movie called knock around guys and Barry Pepper, I got to give a shout out to uh, Spike Lee's 25th Hour. He's really good in that as well uh, with Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's in that as well. The mm, late, the RP. great. But yeah, this is a time where I thought like we would see Barry Pepper and everything. I just think he's so like, what happened to him? Where is he now? Like, what happened to this I don't guy? Know. I don't know. I didn't even look. I didn't even look him up. I have no idea. I haven't seen him. Very distinct. Yeah, though. Yeah. And a great a character, good character in actors in this. Yeah. Good, yeah, good dude. Actor. Like, and, and again, we said Ted Danson's role in this. And He's so good this in this. Size more. They're, they're great. They're totally great. Not distracting at all. Not at all. All right. Two exit questions I have before we go. All right. Nigel wrote in and said, hey, fellas, how did the dedication to historical accuracy in this film inform or pique your interest around the actual events of Operation Neptune? With the main story of the film loosely based on the historical event concerning the Nyland brothers, the attention to detail surrounding specific units and their arm patches, sound effects of vehicles and weapons, and even set detail accurate to location and time, mm. I found myself digging into the history books to learn as much as I could. Yes, Operation Neptune is one of them. That, so that's the the invasion of Normandy, or it, it didn't have to be Normandy, but the invasion of mainland Europe from England. Of course, the United States was already in Africa and pushing through Italy at this time. Okay. And that was like Patton and other people. God, you see. And that. so, so 
there's it's interesting because I, I do what's so there's so much about Operation Neptune that's interesting. And I was lucky enough, as people know, I, I studied American history in college. So I took a lot of I got to take classes on this stuff. And one of my favorite parts of Operation Neptune is all of the shit we did to fake them out about when and where we were going to land. And people should go read about that. There's entire fake units made entire fake like tanks and planes and the inflatable and tanks, ships. right? Yeah, right. So and cool. exactly. And there are fake units made with ar- fake armbands with or fake patches with fake like for things them to, uh, to find fake radio chatter. And one of the things that they were trying to plant, the Nazis were really afraid of Patton because Patton was the only person that seemed to have. Get, so there's a guy named Rommel on the other side. And he's like the great Nazi general and the the the, um, the desert fox. And he kind of gets outworked by Patton and others as they move through North Africa and in, then into Italy, Sicily and all that. And so they were setting the seeds of this idea that Patton was going to be the one that invaded Europe. And they made an entire fake army for him and they were putting it in an entire fake place where they weren't invading. And the Nazis were totally worried about this shit with Patton. And then they hit them somewhere else. So, like, there's a lot to read. Fascinating. Not only about the operation itself, but just about all of the the work that went to. You know, if you look at it, if you look at a map of Great Britain and France, there's just a few obvious places you're going to go. You're obviously not going to go towards like, you know, from leave from Dover and go across at the at, you know, Calais or whatever that is. Right. You're not going to. That's too obvious. You're not going to. You can't scale those things anyway. You need there's only a few places you can go and they needed to get the element of surprise. And so they did the best they could. So are you interested? I, I know you well enough to know you love history, the history of oh, all this stuff. Right? Have you ever read about Operation Neptune and and. D-Day from a historical point of view? No, I don't know enough about it, but I I agree. Same thing for me. It gives that same sentiment where it's like, I would love to learn the real history behind it because in many cases, it's more fascinating than you could ever fictionalize, you know? So yeah, this definitely watching something like this, same thing with Band of Brothers, any good war movie, even something like Braveheart or something about the revolution, like any revolutionary war, like you, you, it just makes you want to get down and dirty with the facts and learn about the real people and the real places and the real campaigns. It's fascinating, dude. Yeah, it's good stuff. And they, they explored a little bit in this movie, but what I love so much is the analog nature of everything they had to do. Mm. It wasn't even, of course it's pre microprocessor by 30 years, but it's also pre computer really by even with, with tubes and, they had radios and all this kind of stuff, but you could see them. They were making maps by hand. They're they're using compasses and and all, it's just it's incredible. The mathematics and the weather forecasting, the the movement of troops trying to use planes to spy, using internal spies, getting things out, updating the maps, getting everything out to everyone, making sure everyone's equipped and the quartermastering and all the rest. It's, it's crazy. They did this all by hand. They didn't have computers to help them and they didn't have satellites in orbit. That's why I always say what people are like, what if they launch these nukes at the United States? And this is what we were talking about the other day. It's like, I feel like we have an apparatus, a war apparatus. Like we have no idea. Oh, I, like I'm that pretty sure that's the case. I don't know if it's going to be effective, but there's a lot of shit we do not know we're capable of at like the lower at the lower level that I'm pretty sure we're capable of. And they had nothing like that to rely upon. And I, I think it's so I, I think that's wonderful that they show that part of it and how important those people are too. they Mm. don't get a lot of the credit probably i think there's probably a little bit of embarrassment 
I know internally, I know a lot of people that were in the military because people my age were all went to Iraq and Afghanistan. So I know yeah. lots of people that were in the military. And one of the things you do here is there is a like a there is a stigma to people that don't fight. There is a stigma attached to those that don't sacrifice and the way they kind of claim false valor and and all the rest and how there's kind of a pecking order about how yeah. you talk about these things. And so there's a lot that goes into it that I'm, I'm totally ignorant of. And thankfully, I, I got to avoid all of that. So, um, yeah. Oh, fascinating stuff to read about. The overarching invasion of Europe is called Overlord. And you can read about that. But the amphibious invasion was Neptune. And that was obviously at that time the only way you were really going to be able to do it. And um, we were trying to make a little pincer, get the, you know, Germany's in the middle. They don't control all of mainland Europe, basically, with the exception of, you know, Spain. Right. And they're being pushed from the southeast and south or southwest and south, I should say. And then from the northwest, they would be shoved from France and the Soviets are pushing them. You know, from the east to the west, they're getting crunched. And that's what ended up happening. It happened by the time we invaded. I mean, this is what's incredible is the Nazis fell in 10 months. Wow. Was point. it really that quick? Yep. Yeah, I didn't know it was that. over. Holy we uh, that's why a lot of people say we kind of. Like Americans often do come in at the end and claim credit. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> do believe that. And I, I want to be clear that we didn't win World War Two by ourselves. The Soviets definitely took the brunt of the of the damage in World War Two in Europe, but they would not have won without us. There's just no way it would have happened that we we drew all of this attention to Western Europe that wouldn't have been there. If we just said like, fuck it, we're dealing with the Japanese. You guys are on your own. Then the Nazis would have been like, okay. And then they would have just sent everything to the Soviet Union and right. it would have turned out totally differently. Good. Point. So it's very important to remember that we are often diminished in our role in Europe because no one dim diminishes our role in Asia. We were the only ones really doing much there. We had the British Navy and stuff there too. But nonetheless, I think it's important to remember, as I said, we are a, with the Europeans and everything. We kind of are a global community. We had our, our each other's backs. I think, this movie really is a good reminder of that, that we have a, a kind of a shared bond in that way. And finally, Carlos A. wrote in and said, Hola, Yo. Moriarty bros. Saving Hola. Private Ryan is regarded as one of the best fil war films ever. It has everything you'd want in a war film. Good plot, better action, emotional core. Where does it rank for you mm. in the pantheon of war media with TV and movies? It doesn't quite top Band of Brothers for me, but it's right up there next to it at number two. I agree. I think Band of Brothers is the seminal work of military um, fiction in terms of media. Yeah. But in terms of movies, I don't know that it gets much better than Saving Private Ryan. No, I, I, it's kind of almost comparing apples and oranges because would Saving Private Ryan been better than than the Band of Brothers if it was 10 hours long and it had all that detail like the cast's pretty good. I mean, we're talking about pretty. So I, I don't know if it's apples to oranges. I think these are the two seminal works of World War Two fiction in TV and film, though. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I can't even imagine like doing Band of Brothers on the scale of Private Ryan, right? Like the blood and the water on the lens, the handheld cameras, the unstoryboarded action sequences, just that sense of chaos and the level of extras and effects and all that kind of stuff would be amazing. I, put, I go 1984 Red Dawn <laughs> and then right I'll go I'll go R Private Ryan right under that. I can't think of a better right war movie than Private Red, Ryan. Red Dawn is, I mean, the seminal World War Three movie, no doubt. Oh my God. No doubt. Don't even bother doing another one. No, no. Really although don't. the Red Dawn, the MGM remake of Red Dawn, where it was like the North Koreans, although I it was supposed to be the Chinese that. originally. 
it's not bad. I gotta watch like that. It's, I watched it, you know, like we always say, arms crossed. Especially, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like impossible, especially when we found out that they went and digitally edited all the Chinese stuff out of it and made it North Korean so they wouldn't offend their new owners. I was like, fuck that. It doesn't even make any sense now. But I went in it, and it doesn't make any sense. But I went in and it was like, well, it's not not bad. It's oh, not right on for 84, but it's, it's not bad. No, it's not bad. I'm going to watch it tonight. Please do. Let yeah, us know I'm what going you think. To. I'm going Maybe to. we'll do one on that and we won't do one on that. I'm not <laughs> do that. Dig, is there anything else said on uh, that we've left unsaid rather about Saving Private Ryan? No, it was fun. I, I'm glad you guys yeah, held my feet cool. to the fire, man. It was, uh, you know, at first, again, like I said, I was kind of worried, kind of felt like I had to steal myself. But it was really nice to go back because it really it's been years. It's probably been a good decade since I've seen it. So it was nice to go back and appreciate it and get a fair share of my hour, not my hour, Tom Hanks, Woody. Woody, right? Woody. It's so funny you said that again, yeah, because Micah just couldn't stop. You can't. I mean, there's something, can't. yeah. It's just for all his things, right? You, you even think like something more iconic, like possibly more iconic, like Forrest Gump. But you don't think of Forrest Gump. You think of Woody. You cowboy Woody. I man. agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And I think of COVID, like I said. <laughs> that's right. right. He was number one. He yep. really was. All right, my friend. Well, that's Saving Private Ryan. I uh, Let me think here. I rented it on Amazon, but I saw that it was on Paramount Plus. Oh, is so it really? That or whatever they call that. Yeah, yeah I, I got think that's it on what it's Amazon called. Amazon too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm same. not getting Paramount Plus. That's not happening. That's the only one that's, I don't. That's have. a bridge. That's a fucking bridge too far <laughs> for me. I just canceled HBO. Actually, did you so cancel? It's, yeah, it's like I don't need it right now. I'm just. It really is a waste of money. You could just reactivate it whenever you want. Whenever you want, and then just start it again. So I, I just I have Netflix because of tradition, like I say, and then I have Amazon Prime because. I have Amazon Prime and I just use it. So yeah. I, uh, you just get that for free. And then I um, I think that's it. And then I have like Spotify and YouTube okay. premium and I just watch YouTube. All right. So no Apple, no yeah. Hulu. No, I had Apple for a little while because I watched the I watched the first season. It was cool. That show um, for all mankind. I did like that show. Oh, I didn't see that. I haven't seen that about about the, uh, the it's like an alternate history space race thing where the Soviets win the space race. Oh, you told me about this. So I had it for that, but I, I, I don't know. There's just too many, it's too many distractions. I play video games. You know, that's what most of what I do. I so. understand. But yeah, we'll get into another TV show soon, though, and other movies as well on the show here on Knockback. Absolutely. Let's end this episode, as we always do, with a dad joke. All right. I got one for you guys from our friend James Ketchum via Twitter DM. Kyle, do you know why you shouldn't fart in the Apple store? Uh, no, because they don't have windows <laughs> windows. That's pretty good. When I hear James Ketchum, because I know that name from our audience. It's like catch them all. Got to yeah. catch them all. Got to catch them all. Pokemon. Maybe he's a poke. <laughs> I think James Ketchum should be a Pokemon fan. I'm not sure if he is. I assume so. I assume so. Knowing this audience. <laughs> all right, my friend. Well, Dave, thank you for your time. Appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate it. fun. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Same private Ryan, always a, always a joy. Uh, thank you for voting for that. Remember, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media to vote on topic ideas. Also, you get every episode of the show ad-free a week early, so that's fun. Submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to the show, and so on and so forth. We'll see you next time for more. Until then, goodbye. Foobar. <laughs> Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. 
The show is conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Stephen Innerfield, Andrew Roman, Lord Starscream, Jacob Donovan, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Fucking Mayo, Logan Byford, GJ, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Nog, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Blake Nesbitt, Nuclear Prostate, Sorta Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Renegade. Graham, Christian R., Jad Rita, Patrick Skipper, Brian Hernandez Espinoza, Chris Kelly, Remington Wilson, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Allen Rui, Quinton Thedens, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Esak Parades, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Andreas Wessling, Randall Halsey, Robbie Nauman, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Daniel Johnson, H. Trons, Trey W., Antonio C., Jay Getter, Assassinated Devil, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Silvinsky, Jordan Gale, Of Fortuna, John Zile, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Gavin Newland, Alex Lapierre, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Matt Flowers, Kinnams, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnanen, Chris, Dave Alvarez, Will Hernandez, Chris Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naaman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Simon Dunbar, D.B. Cooper, Fat Houdini, Richter 86, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVio, Chris Morton, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Carlos Algaret, Dominic, Mike Menzel, Richard Heber III, Miranda Gr- Josh Yeager, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Betty Ann Moriarty, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Tom Quinn, Spencer F., Anton K., Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Robbie Hensley, Shane Miller, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, The Rose Experience and Grizzled Veteran Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Geo Corsi, Joe Joey Gondoliker, Gerald Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Garson-Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Carper, Mad Mock Media, and Jonathan Rice.